Wherever you are in the world, welcome to another episode of Endurance Chat. I'm Mark Zalavari. Joining me today is Austin Zetsman. Good evening, Austin. It's Sunday for you, right? Yeah, Sunday evening fun day, Michael. I am doing well and ready to talk Asian Moss series recap of uh, season 2021. Yes, that's what we've got to do today. A season that ended a few weeks ago, but life has taken us on this glorious journey in the meantime. And also there's just been so much news. Uh, so we are finally backtracking to talk about the Asian Le Mans series for 2021. And we might just squeeze a little tidbit of Daytona in there as well. But before we get into that, we've got to say thank you to the theracingline.app, your personalized motorsport calendar. Thank you for supporting this podcast and everything you do. Um, convert time zones and choose your series and have it work in a way that doesn't involve me with a spreadsheet and things going on fire. Uh, search it up at theracinglion.app or on the iOS store. And yeah, we should get into it. So the Asian Le Mans series, right? Boy, howdy, that was a schedule. I don't think I've seen any series cram four races which ended up being 16 hours worth of motorsport into two weekends without it being a 24-hour race. It was just a lot of racing very, very quickly. Yeah, we had an entire season in less than three weeks. That was uh, intense. <laughs> well, it, it ended up being the, the races themselves were all in the space of a week. So it was Saturday was Saturday 1 was race 1 and Saturday 2 was race 4. That's a lot. And no, it, honestly, it it really, it really was just. I, I won't. I don't want to say too much, but man, I felt exhausted after watching all of them in that short of time. Like I'll just say that <laughs> February yeah. never seemed so uh, endurance heavy in terms of uh, uh, like uh, events on the calendar. Well, yeah, exactly. In 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 the previous years, it was the biggest break of the calendar between in February because you had the Bathurst twelve hour in uh, in the first week of February, and then the last round of the Asian Le Mans series at the last week of February. But yeah, because the Bathurst 12 hour wasn't a thing this year, may it come back in the future pretty, 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 pretty please. Uh, and the whole everything with the Asian Le Mans series, we just had this very compressed injection of endurance racing. And it was a lot. It was a very grueling schedule. Uh, and like with the qualifying and the practice and the testing, it just seemed that there was cars on track every single day for for a week. It was a lot. It really was a lot. Yeah, the thing too to note with just the location of both of the races was that uh, who who would have thunk that the Middle East could really be a good spot for uh, hosting all these events, like kind of back to back and whatnot. You know, just from the the wrinkle that it's you know um not a ton of people that are there you don't have a lot of local i won't say restrictions and, and whatnot but you just the ability for covid to really kind of uh be a looming threat that it wasn't as big as you if you were actually going to go to a, a normal asian lamar series round you know obviously with one of them already have being around for the asian lamar series so i think it was um you know it it definitely spoke for the times that we're still in, and uh, and I feel like, sure, I you know, Asian Law Series is definitely not going to do financially as good this year compared to other years, but I think that how they did this just to pull it off and to be able to, to get it done and to really not have any issues with that is, I mean, you got to applaud them for that. So. Abs- absolutely. So to Zero Taste Rollin, the entire crew, the like the organizing crew, the media crew, and everyone, that that's an incredible achievement. We'll talk more, a bit more about that 
at the end of the show. But let's quickly, if you missed the races, there was two races in Dubai back-to-back and then two races at Yas Marina. We'll just very quickly talk about the races in like a little bit of detail before we'll talk about the championship as a whole because really, with the all so compressed, you can talk about the championship as a whole, which is nice. Uh, so Dubai race one. Uh, the, the thing that really... Uh, was the defining moment of the the first race in Dubai was uh, the Joda Sport car with Sean Galea at the tire uh, at the wheel, uh, leading in traffic and then destroying two teams' races at once uh, within the first twenty minutes. It was not a a great run for Galea in that race. I think he took out the Phoenix car while trying to pass it for the lead, uh, and then G Drive just had the luxury to run on and take a a uncontested victory with the sister car spilling 20 liters of oil cumulatively over the course of the race. They had like some sort of slow drip or something which forced them into the pits uh, in shorter intervals so they didn't really have a challenge. Uh, United did United things in P3 and then we had a, a very interesting battle in GT between the Herberth, uh, the Precote Herberth number 91 car and the GPX Racing number 40, I, I believe it's the 44 car. Uh, where it was a change, a, like a very different strategy where they were using their pro drivers and am drivers, and which resulted in the pro driver for the uh, Prickett Hoberth team uh, coming uh, with a full head of steam chasing down the am driver of the GPX racing uh, team. So this is Robert Renau versus Alain Ferte. And uh, unfortunately, Ferte made a mistake on the last lap and ceded the victory. So it was a, it was a pretty... Uh, what, what would you say, Cookie? Your thoughts on race one? It was a it was a pretty steady race, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I and again for for how everything is going, you know, with everything happening in such a condensed schedule, it's you know the not necessarily like the importance of the race, but just just where that all of this stuff really does does matter, and you kind of you have to be on your A game uh, from the start, and you know times to be able to reset if you do make mistakes in the first race are less than 24 hours yeah so it, it was really kind of telling to see how teams would uh, first attack the championship and obviously the, the track um and then just to see yeah the the level of kind of competition that we saw was pretty intense for the entire field and that was really good to see i mean and obviously the the, the amount of gt cars um i think was was also just a, a noteworthy point too um just a quick note with the you know sean Galeo, um, you know, we kind of did see almost just like a progression of yeah. of getting his feet wet in endurance racing, really. I mean, just from being in the open wheel segment for, you know, however many years, um, you know, it, it kind of was that prototypical, uh, you know, just wanting to go all the time and just mm. trying to gun it, gun it, gun it. And you saw, you know, that how that played out essentially yeah. progressed yeah exactly and it just interesting to note too as we work through the next races you know almost where he got more of a f- his feet under him and it, it wasn't necessarily that he didn't have his feet under him this time just there was that awkwardness of maybe multi-class endurance racing and having those slower traffic to contend with and you know when to pick your battles and when to really you know be aggressive and be on the tack so yeah and- um it seemed kind of almost typical for how uh i would you know, almost want to see an open wheel driver try to translate that into uh, prototype racing. But um, yeah, it, it, I thought it was a great race. Um, you know, some frustrations there, but it, ov- overall, I think the 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 good caliber of 
all the classes, I guess, or the good good talent in all the classes seem to rise to the top. So. Yeah, it, it was a steady race. And it was an interesting note you make there about Galeo's involvement because that was literally the first run through traffic, as in they were passing the GT leaders. I, I specifically remember that it was the, the, the GT leader at the time, the Porsches, that they came up on. And it was like the first opportunity he got and he just sent it down the inside and it all just kind of turned into a bit of a, a, a poo uh so that uh, we as you made mention we will talk a bit more about galeo throughout the series he did go through a little bit of a hero's journey redemption arc uh but i i want to quickly mention before that the the porsche uh domination just they seem to be much better instead than the rest of the field and that continued in race two so in race two we had the same battle for the lead between GPX and Pricker Herberth, but this time GPX had swapped their drivers around throughout the race. They'd swapped their strategies, so that way they had their pro driver in at the end of the race, and that was enough for them to take the victory. On the other hand, we had an early safety car uh, for... Oh, I'm trying to remember. There was a cast uh, off at the end of turn one. There was contact at the end of turn one between one of the BMWs and a Ferrari, which caused a safety car. And we had some great P2 battles in that section as well. I think we had Arjun uh, Maney in the uh, Racing Team India car, which really took it to the fore and was almost leading at one point. So we had like five car battle in uh, P2 before it really spread out. Uh, and then uh, the G-Drive crew really put in a pit stop to Eclipse Phoenix before uh, Galeo again caused on- contact with a P3 car and took himself and another group out of the race. So here we go, Galeo again. Um, that second race for, for Dubai, it was a bit... What were your thoughts, first of all? I, well, okay, so pre- prefacing before we get into the second race, because I, I, I don't think it was as good as the first one, uh, I think that Dubai has made, at least Dubai Autodrome has made an argument for if they do hold a Middle Eastern round and it's not Bahrain, to do something there. Because yeah. I, I I knew that track for GT racing, and they obviously had some P3 racing before a little bit. Just yes, a, a as, little part bit. The, um, uh, as part of the f- Festival of Endurance, including the uh, Dubai 24 yeah, hours, 24. they do a, a P3 yep. race there. I thought that that was a great track for uh, prototype racing too. Uh, there was kind of maybe in the back of my head, it was like a, well, maybe this is just a good GT only track or something like that to like a, maybe a VIR stuff, but, and just with how open and, you know, asphalt laden the whole thing is, but it still was very, very good. And I think that there was definitely, there was rhythm parts. There was stuff that were disturbed for the P2 drivers to have to work around solar traffic with. And it, uh, it there was more, there was a good ebb and flow to it. And I mm. thought it was solid. So um, I thought that, you know, if there was a potential thing to maybe if they don't go to Bahrain at some point, that would be an also a really good track. Because, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I totally agree with Bahrain that. Bahrain doesn't excite me. <laughs> oh, mm, I, I, like, I like Bahrain for prototype racing and multi-class racing. I really, really do. But you do make a good point. The, the most technical part of the circuit is technical but it's open and flowing it's like that run down through four five and then round back through six and seven which is where we saw all the contact between uh sean galail and the other drivers so i think it, i think it has put a good ca- good case forward and you could certainly see the teams that had experience at dubai especially in gt were a step above everyone else particularly gpx who uh had gpx oh, and place. herberth who had won the dubai 24 hour so mm-hmm. I, I will agree that the second race at Dubai didn't really have the same 
Allure is the first one. We, we did get something that we didn't really get in the first race, which was great battling in P2. I think because in the first race, everyone kind of tripped over themselves in the, yeah, in the first race. So we did have a good period of the race where there was actual battling in P2. Um, but o- overall, it was just a little less enthralling, I think. Um, that's not to say that it wasn't as good a quality. It was just a little less exciting, a lot more, a lot more, uh, watching the timing screen uh, than watching the battles on track. I mean, and again, I think that's more of like me maybe looking at the podium, like, cause obviously there was the 25 and 64 that are battling right at the end there. Um, and that was, that was pretty close, um, you know, for second, third, fourth, just to see who, who could get on the podium. Yeah. So that was interesting. Um, but yeah, I think overall too, it was just, there was, you know, it, it got, it kind of shrunk a little bit um, in terms of uh, where everybody was, pace-wise with each other in the gaps, but then, yeah, it started to kind of expand a bit, and um, it settled into more of a of a little bit of a, um, not procession, but, you, you know, it was a little bit more like, okay, it's, you know, there's not that potential excitement for there to be an extra battle, but again, the the, the timing, or the, the finishing times are definitely close, it almost seems some, somewhat closer than race one, but I definitely got that feeling that race two mm. just didn't have that much pop in it, and, and I'm not sure why. Uh, I I think there is an answer as to why that is, and we'll talk a bit more about it later, but I will say that there was some action missed in P3, and particularly in GT at the very end of the race, for the minor positions, that really should have been brought to the fore, and kind of wasn't, so that might have been why as well. I mean, the the gaps for 4th, 5th, and 6th in GT were less than two seconds between all three of them. So it was a bit of a, a bit of a shame that we missed out on that, but uh, it was, you know, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that later. Um, so for, for the first race, we did mention uh, the number 26 G-Drive racing car took the win ahead of the Yoda Sport car and then Phoenix Racing. The second G-Drive car was the one that struggled with the oil problem. And then in P3, it was just United, Nielsen, United, United. So, you know, all the usual suspects there. Uh, GT, we made mention, Pricker Herbert Motorsport taking that on the penultimate lap. Uh, GPX Racing actually got a penalty for track limits violations on that last lap as well. So they dropped to fourth uh, behind the Inception Racing McLaren and the Walking Horse Motorsport BMW, which was the best result for the BMW for the entire season. In the second race, it was G-Drive from G-Drive, 26 winning once again. Then Phoenix Racing, then Racing Team India. Joda Sport got a bit more damage that time around, so they dropped to sixth. Uh, then... In P3, it was United, United, and then Nielsen. So again, the same usual suspects. Uh, and then GT, GPX Racing with the strategy change got first ahead of Rinaldi. And then Garage 59, the the Aston Martin in the hands of Maxime Martin doing very well in the late stages of that race to kind of work its way through the pack. Um, so there's a little bit more on the Garage 59 story when we talk about the second race at Yas Marina. Uh, but o- overall, Dubai, it was... It was kind of over before we even really got into it, it felt like. We just had this big build, and then all of a sudden there's two races, and then, oh, it's done. Where do we go next? Yep, yep. And uh, and again, yeah, there was that fever pitch to it where it was, um, you know, not only are a lot of these teams looking at um, these quick turnaround times, but if there was contact and, and some damage, you know, there was quick turnaround time for repairs. And we saw a few few cars uh, with some bare carbon uh, with some of the panels and replacement panels just to make sure that they had the right aerodynamics and just had that car repaired enough to be on the grid and race the, you know, either the next day or the next week. Yeah. So, you know, you, you definitely saw that. And then uh, lastly, too, that we did see, you know, this is the first iteration of the uh, LMP3s. Yes. Uh, the new version of the LMP3s. So we saw three of them. Um, 
uh, three different chassis, at least uh, as far as I know. Yes. Uh, competing at Abu Dhabi and uh, or not in Abu Dhabi, uh, D- Dubai, excuse me. And um, and then, we'll and Abu then Abu again later. at Abu Dhabi. Right, but uh, <laughs> and yeah, so <laughs> but it's uh, interesting too to note, um, you know, that Duquesne and Liger kind of seem to pick up where they left off. I mean, obviously their aero engineering didn't seem to be too crazy different from their first iterations of the P3 chassis, but um, it was really good to see the Janetta at least be on the on the grid. And even though they've had lackluster results for those first two rounds, I think DNF on the first race, and then uh, and then having like a uh, a in in sort of in the mix p9 for the class uh finish for the second race um at least it's good to see and that's that is a looker that is a looker yeah i i will say those smooth lines on the janetta are very sexual uh but they did struggle throughout the series and we'll talk a bit more about that uh later on they only just achieved classification in race two at dubai after having a very problem run in pardon me race one uh, so that was Dubai, and then Yas Marina had uh, a week of a, a few sessions of testing before getting straight into the same format. One qualifying session, two races. Now it was very interesting here. What you made mention of just a second ago about you know bits of cars uh, breaking off and having to be very conservative with your spares and everything. There were quite a few incidents in testing at Yas Marina, including a, a bit of a scary off for Tom Blomquist in the Jota Sport car, where he made contact with the wall on the outside of Turn 1, and so they had to basically rebuild that car, the Yoda Sport car, overnight to to get that car in for practice and for qualifying. So the fact that they managed to do that in itself was quite impressive, and then what they managed to do with that uh, was also quite impressive, because in Yas Marina Race 1, it was a bit of a redemption for Galeo, who managed to drive a, what, three-hour stint? In, in its victory for the Yoda Sport car. Um, ended up winning by overall lap, which is a bit of a, a, a extended gap considering you know where everyone was on the track at the time at the end of the race. Uh, but there was a significant lack of pace for the G-Drive cars in a straight line, uh, which saw them finish a lap back uh, about a minute apart from each other. And then Phoenix Racing down in fifth. Uh, and... Very interesting as well, a double retirement in the first 20 or so minutes for United Autosports meant that they didn't lock out the podium, it was Nielsen Racing 1 and 2 who locked out the podium, and then United Autosports finished in third, so again, the usual suspects in P3, uh, and then and GT, GT was a bit of a mixed bag, again it was Porsche from Porsche, uh, and then Formula Racing, uh, the number 60 Ferrari taking home third place. It, it, it surprises me that even in the the mixed for, well the condensed format that we still had all the same names up the top of each of the classes. I would have expected a little more variance, but I guess we get that in the next race. Yeah, I, I think too to note as well uh, with some BOP changes, you kind of expected a little bit more of a shakeup, or at least maybe more of a con- condensation of uh, of lap times uh, from some of the different chassis. But really, again, like you said, it was that Porsche. Uh, GT3R running kind of almost away with it in that first race mm. um, and kind of like leaving the Ferraris, Mercedes and AMRs kind of in the dust, really. Oh, and the BMW. Sorry, I don't want to miss that one. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that you, you make a, a good point, really, because honestly, if the United Autosports didn't have that, that issue pretty much off the start for one of their cars, then obviously the other one having issues early on. You know, we were looking very close to, again, having like a very, very United Autosport heavy uh, podium in LMP3. 
And that really was a little bit of the shakeup that you saw from the major classes there in terms of the prospective winners, because uh, you still had G-Drive and Jota really kind of being the class of the field. And while everybody else is kind of playing catch up with them to see mm. if they have an, an issue or anything like that, um, it really, like you said, was a little bit more of the same uh, that we got from the first two races. Yeah, and it, it, it was still surprising to me that the even with United tripping up, it was still United and Nielsen on the podium, like... They, they are obviously the, the class of the field. They were the ones coming over from Europe. Nielsen were last year's champions, by the way, as well. So it, it, it's just, you know, they just keep being there. And there, there, there are other stories in P3 that we'll definitely talk about at the, at the end of this segment. But they are just something else between the two of them. They are the dynasty in, in P3. It's kind of scary. It's too for the, both of those organizations, too, that they can continue and maintain. I mean, obviously with United Autosports, but I think that Nielsen Racing kind of is, is more or less proving that they are, you know, a, you know, equivalent to like a Eurosport, or a, a Eurasia, almost like Eurasia, yeah. um, Jota, that kind of stuff, even uh, JCDC way back when and all that stuff where that they, they had that hit that caliber of, uh, of competition level. And I mean, you kind of almost have to, you know, give them a slight nod to potentially win it outside of United Autosport, really. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, they went to Le Mans last year for winning this championship. So uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Le Mans invites at the end of the show. But yeah, it, it was... Uh, so this is the one race that I didn't actually catch live. So I did have to catch up on this and I may have missed things in it. Uh, but I was particularly surprised to see how dominant the Porsche was again as well. Because I, I, even with BOP changes, even with... I think they got 40 kilograms of ballast... The, the GPX car was just unstoppable. Yeah. Uh, I mean, especially with the strategies that they've got um, and just, just their comfort with the GT3 platform in general. I mean, and in the races that they've previously run, um, you know, there's a there's a level of comfort when you are doing, you're just repeating the same kind of deal over and over mm. again. And especially when you're, I, 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 we can't stress enough, I guess, how condensed that this calendar schedule is just from like the dates and themselves just so that you can kind of, maintain your you know even heel even if something goes right something goes wrong you're staying in that level and any kind of little edge and experience that you have either at these tracks or just i mean in the region um or just even that you know they've been racing here in you know january february every year that kind of thing you know there's just a a level of advantage or comfort that you can then you know that you can almost massage and and make an advantage that's on track and so i feel like um you know even if gpx wasn't in that porsche they would still be up there with whatever chassis they have just based on their comfort and their experience level at these tracks and especially at this time yeah well i mean gpx literally is the driving school for yas marina that they they are positioned at yas marina their drivers are the driving school (laughs) well i I didn't want to say that because then it's like oh there there's the advantage but yeah you're like that's exactly right that's exactly exactly right. right uh so now the final race the final race of the Age of Le Mans series, race four, the second race of Yas Marina. That one was incredible. Did you end up watching the whole thing like I told you to do? Did you end up watching it yeah, with timing? Yes. How? Uh, I didn't watch it with timing, but I did watch the whole thing. How good was that race? Uh, it was very good. Um, on the TV, it wasn't yeah. I think as good as it could have been, but uh, it was very, very good. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it had kind of everything that you would want from, like, an exciting, action-packed endurance race, uh, and it delivered, absolutely. Yeah, so I ended up writing the report. So this race started at 
11 p.m. for me, or 10.30 p.m. for me. So it finished at 2.30 in the morning. I spent an hour and a half writing literally 2,500 words about this race, just trying to tell the story properly, because, oh my god, there was so much to tell. So uh, NP, Norwegian Petrolhead in the chat, does make a great point. It started off with a lot of yellow flag, which... Uh, is it was very unfortunate, and especially for the two Ferraris. The I think it was the or oh, care no, not Kessel Racing Ferrari. Um, it was the whereabouts is it? Uh, the AF Corsa Ferrari and the Rinaldi Ferrari, um, which had a big accident at the end of the long straight, which brought out the safety car, the Formula Racing Ferrari. Uh, and, oh, no, uh, sorry, the two AF Corsa Ferraris, there we go, we got there in the end, uh, the 51 and the 54 had a big accident at the end of the long straight, you know, getting, it, uh, if, well, not the long straight, the alternate pit straight, the, yeah, the, the, the second long straight, because it's, the, it's the, the curved long straight, um, because yes. if you, if you find the, the tech pro at Abu Dhabi, you've done a great job, and they were buried in it, so it's something very <laughs> obviously went wrong there. Yeah, it was like a brake failure. It had to be something, hung throttle or whatever, because there was there, there was heavy damage, and they were both of them were in the tire barrier. So mm. it had to be something where one of them had a high speed impact with the other, and both of them sailed into it. So and and both of them were taken to hospital for observation, I believe. Yeah, so I think Thomas Floor got out of the car and he was fine, and Francesco Piovanetti had a little more observation, but a well, from what I've heard, he was also fine, which is very very good to see. Uh, honestly, after an in- impact like that, to, to have both drivers walk or will get out of the cars and be okay was was very very good. Um, but that that brought out forty minutes of yellow flag within the first hour. Forty minutes of safety car. Now, something we didn't make mention of is that in every class except for P two, you had a mandated number of timed pit stops. So you had to do three pit stops that were one hundred and ten seconds uh, throughout the race, uh, and a lot of teams managed to get one or two of those pit stops done in that first hour because of the safety car. Uh, and then it became a, a bit of a game of who's got their pit stops done and what strategies are all these different teams on building to the end of the race. And at one point in the GT race, we had, I think it was eight cars on different strategies with different driver talents all in with a chance of playing themselves into the victory. It was kind of cool. But what what this did mean as well was that a few cars got burned because they had their pro drivers in when they had all that safety car. And then a few cars got an advantage because they had their AM drivers in when they had all that safety car. So it was a really cool, really interesting mix. Uh, and it was really the Aston Martins and the BMWs who got burned. And then the Ferraris, the Porsches and the uh, McLarens that came up to the fore and it was such a cool race in that middle part of GT just kind of trying to figure out who was going to end up where and that that built so nicely and in that as well you had the same thing happening in P3 and the P2 battle was constant throughout the race well and I think I think at some point uh, with a little over an hour to go or it was under an hour ago GG was was still kind of going that it was that there was still all to play for in the race and that you didn't really know still yet uh, what the final strategy was going to be for some of these teams because it was like unless you were tracking it from their the start and how that they, you know, with their pros and M's and, you know, for how that they were for short pitting, short fueling, that kind of stuff, you really didn't know really where where the excellent strategies were going to be laid out until oh. you got into the last 30 minutes of the race. See, see, you say that. 
But I absolutely called it on, like, the first hour of the race. I put up a tweet saying that the car guy team had done all their timed pit stops, and they were... Because at this point, they were, like, second last in GT. And I, I said on Twitter, you can timestamp it, and you can see where I said it. These guys are going to come through the field, watch for them, because they're going to play a masterstroke here. And they did! They came through, they short field at the end, they dropped out in front of everyone, and they won the race! I'm proud of myself yep. for that. <laughs> oh, and I mean, and, and again, it was just some some brilliant overtakes, too. I mean, uh, yeah. especially with that the slow corner chicane. I mean, like, the, some of them where you're just like, whoa, 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 okay, the car guy went through. And you're like, you just, it, they had to make that work along with that excellent strategy. And I felt like that was... You saw just a lot, obviously more overtaken that way, but it was it was a brilliant call, brilliant plan from them, and uh, you know an awesome race victory for them. Yeah, or, and yeah, and, victory, and I should say it was it was a good a good thing that you mentioned those overtakes because in the middle of the race they did something that none of the other teams could do, and that was get through some of the slower traffic. Uh, I made mention about the Aston Martins getting a little burned. They had uh, I think it was Alexander West and. Oh, I'm trying to quickly remember the other driver in that car because they did a great job. It was um, Michael Benham in the other Garage 59 car who who basically act, act as little stoppers for the guys like Herbert Motorsport and Rinaldi Racing who kind of just got stuck trying to pass the slower AM drivers. Whereas uh, I think it was uh, Comb Ledegar or uh, it was Comb Ledegar in the car in the middle stint who managed to make those moves, and that's really what delivered them the race win. And, you know, they still had to build a gap at the end because it was looking like uh, Inception Racing uh, with Ben Barnacote was going to steal that from them, but they they did a really good job. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, it, let's talk about the McLaren, too, um, grabbing a, their first podium uh, for the season for Asian Law Series. And uh, just uh, a solid effort for them. Obviously, that it, it worked out in their favor with the early uh, safety cars. But um, I think it, it, it really speaks for how that program is starting to hopefully evolve. And I, I, I hope to see more of that kind of success as we get through into the European rounds. Yeah, absolutely. And they will take a Le Mans invite as well for, uh, for Optimum Motorsport and Inception Racing. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But let's just tie off this nice little Yas Marina race in a bow. Uh, while that all played out, that the GT battle finished in the last 10 minutes. The P3 battle finished in the last 10 minutes with United Autosports taking a pretty incredible 1-2-3 in that race. Yep. 1-2-3. Like, that is... They are they are the evil empire. They are the, the friendly empire. evil empire. Yes, absolutely. Right? <laughs> and I, I just want to quickly mention, they have seven... Six? Six automatic six entries. Seven. seven. Yes. It's something like that, yeah. They have an absurd amount of automatic entries for Le Mans. I, I actually had to like research and write them all down because I couldn't believe it myself. So they have a Le Mans... This is their list of Le Mans invites. So they are the reigning Le Mans P2 champions, so they get an automatic invite for that. They uh, were first and second in the 2020 ELMS P2 class, so they get two invites for that. They were first in the 2020 ELMS P3 class, so they get an automatic invite for that. Uh, They won the Asian Le Mans series in P3, so that's five automatic invites. Plus, they are a full-season WEC entrant, so they have six automatic invites for Le Mans this year. Six of them! It's it's incredible, and then also to note that they are exercising three of them. Or, or, well, yeah, they're going to have three cars, it seems, in... 
uh, at Lamar and LMP2. So one more than I think they've had before. They usually only under two. Uh, but yeah, it just speaks for the absolute <laughs> domination of that of that entire group that they could essentially lock up six automatic invites. And if they wanted to exercise them, they would have six United Autosport entries racing in P2 at Le Mans. They are, they are the, the United Empire. <laughs> right. And, and, and the, weird, the weird part is that we're all not really upset by that because it's, 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 they're doing it the, the right way. The I mean, like way, they're, yeah. Right. They're, they're, they're going by kind of the letter of the law here, and they're doing everything the right way. And, I, I mean, how am I supposed to complain about that? I mean, they, they have the resources and the manpower and the, and the skill set to really get it done. And, uh, and I think that should absolutely be rewarded. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they're, they're going to have three cars this year. I, I, I would be I would be fine if they showed up with six, to be honest. I mean, yeah, it might not, it, they might stink the show up a bit, but hey, I mean, they absolutely deserve to kind of showcase their talents as a group. I mean, it's it, it, remarkable. It is remarkable. You know how we kind of complain about P2 becoming LMP Orica? We, we might have to update yeah. We might have to update that and just call it LMP United. That's, that's the reality of where we're going at the moment. <laughs> anyway, uh, to finish off on that race as well, while all of those battles were being resolved and we were in the last 10 minutes of the race, uh, Franco Colapinto in the number 25 G-Drive car ran down Sean Galeo in the Joda Sport car for the overall race victory. And the, we had two laps at the end of the race where it was back and forth like some touring car stuff between these two P2 cars. And that was an incredible way to end the season. And Sean Galeo absolutely had the full redemption arc here, taking home a double win in Yas Marina, managing to hold off uh, Franco Colapinto at the very end there. So that was how it ended in P2. And really, with all three classes building to a climax like that, you couldn't ask for anything more. Yeah, and speaking of Sean Galeo again, I mean, that was where I was kind of heading with it, that uh, you know that he had some you know, uh, first outing blues, we'll say, and from switching from that open wheel to sports car endurance prototype racing. But, uh, I mean, at Abu Dhabi, I mean, he absolutely shined. And uh, both races, I mean, the hero stint, over three hours stints, uh, basically surrendering only a single stint to Tom Bloomquist uh, in that first race, and then doing something very similar, not as not as heavy on the time length, but just for how intense the, the race was for him, at least just to defend that, that race lead. Um, at the end, I mean, he absolutely uh, shown his scuff and skill and why, I mean, if he can't be an open wheel, I would absolutely love for him to stay in uh, prototype racing. He's a, he's a talented prototype driver. Well, to be fair, the entire reason the Yoda Sport car was entered into the Europe, uh, the Asian Le Mans series was for Galeo to drive. Like, he was fun. I'm pretty sure he was funding that entire thing. And it's not often that you see Tom Blomquist only get one stint in a car and the car still wins. So there's certainly some skill there and certainly some some promise there for that entry in the WEC season. Uh, so, yeah, he, he absolutely had a full redemption arc. So, well done, Sean. I, I, think, I think coming off of Dubai, we were all very uh, nonplussed by his performances, uh, especially when in traffic. But uh, he did a great job in... Changing a few people's minds, including yeah, mine. I mean, right, and it, he had some sketchy times in uh, in the feeder series of Formula One too. The last couple of years as well. I mean, you know, he he, there was a little bit of flash of the uh, flash in the pan kind of deal with that, and then you know there would be some questionable kind of um, you know attacking decisions in terms of you know just just being more patient and uh, and 
I, I think people were very worried after the first two races that that was kind of going to continue to show through and, and you don't want to do that in, in endurance racing at all. And that's, that's not going to get you any extra seat time anywhere. So mm. um, just a, it was, it was very good to see him absolutely turn around and really be the driver almost of the weekend, in my opinion of, uh, of, uh, yes, yeah, absolutely. I, I, We'll agree with that, but we'll discuss more about that in a second. Uh, so the championships ended up going to the G-Drive number 26 car, which was uh, Yifei-Ye, uh, oh, whereabouts? Yifei-Ye, Ferdinand Habsburg, and Rene Binder. Um, so they get a Le Mans invite for that, which is part of the reason that G-Drive enters the Asian Le Mans series nowadays. Uh, the United number 23 car, as we mentioned, grabbed the uh, P3 automatic invite, uh, which, again... A baker's or half a dozen invites for United Autosports, kind of scary. Uh, Herbert Motorsport, uh, the number ninety-nine car, uh, GPX number forty, uh, the the Porsche. They both got automatic invites after Herbert won the championship in the last race. The Optimum Racing Inception Motorsport number seven McLaren won the uh, won an automatic invite as well for third place, and the Rinaldi Racing number fifty five Ferrari also took the last automatic invite on offer in uh, the GT class. Uh, there was also an LMP two AM class and a GT AM class. Uh, LMP two AM was one pretty uncontested by the ERA Motorsport team backing up their Daytona victory, which is how. <laughs> They survived is yeah. more or less how the Daytona victory, for sure. And I mean, you could say the same thing about this season as well in the Age Le Mans series because their only yeah. competitor, which was uh, the... I'm going to have to quickly find them here. Euro International just kind of never really got off the ground in their effort, unfortunately. Uh, and uh, LMP, uh, GTM went the way of uh, Kessel Racing, with uh oh no sorry Rinaldi racing with Patrick Kujula just every single time Kujula was in the car something happened and it had an even 50-50 chance of being something amazing like him just tearing through the field or something terrible like him running into someone or getting a track limits penalty yeah it uh it definitely felt like that and <laughs> I mean good that we are having those classes uh we, <laughs> we have a little bit more entries with them but at the same time yeah you could definitely see the difference between some of the calibers of the driver entries for those uh for that class yeah so that's basically the a very short wrap-up of each of the races now if you did not see the yas marina race two i 100 percent it starts off very slow because of the long safety car instance but Get on it, watch the replay. If you have the capability to get on the uh, timing.71 website and catch a replay of the live timing as well, get in on that because that race, it, it had everything that you want from an endurance race. And pay particular attention to when the pit stops are being taken and what length they are because that will really add the color to the background of that race because I think that's quite possibly... Certainly race of the year so far, but quite possibly one of the best endurance races I've seen in the last... One of the best non-Bathurst 12-hour or Nürburgring 24-hour races I've seen in the last two or three years. I thought you weren't going to be putting all those qualifiers in, but you just snuck them in at the end. So oh, I, I, like, I, 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 can't, I can't say it's better than Bathurst the last two years, because Bathurst the last two years has just been incredible. Yeah, that, yep, yep, the Campbell Pass at the, oh you know, coming down the hill. Man. Oh, my God. That was so good. So yeah. good. And, and then the, the finish with the Bentley with the puncture that somehow yep. put them further ahead. I just thought, 
Jules Gunnarsson. <laughs> that was incredible. Uh, so now let's just discuss a bit more about the series on the whole. So we're going to be doing a bit more of like free form discussions here. So we're going to be a little bit more over the place, but we'll go through. I've got some points here that we can just work our way through. So the first one I wanted to mention is the qualifying in the schedule. So we had this condensed schedule. So it was 16 hours of racing in eight days, including practice, testing, qualifying, and all that as well. One qualifying session for two races. So your first qual- first best lap sets race one. Your second best lap sets race two. Did the qualifying and the scheduling promote better racing or did it force more conservative racing? Or what were your thoughts? What, were you, what How did you think that went? Because um, it was I mean, grueling. Had... It was grueling. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have mixed feelings about it because I, I just feel like if, if we're doing this, that, that kind of stuff anyway, why not just maybe invert the field, that kind of thing, and just let's see what happens that way. And if people want to try to do weird strategies of driving super slow for no reason to get the pole, I guess go for it and see how that works. I mean, I would have been fine to do something like that just because of the way that how these uh, weekends are condensed that you really, I, I felt like you really couldn't get a whole lot of like a, prototypical you know practice qualify session race that kind of stuff so you were already amending a lot of this race weekend traditions and and just kind of the normal muscle memory of a lot of these teams so why not just mix it up a little bit you know if not anything for the fans let's just try that so i felt like they maybe could have done some slight other things just to maybe make it a little bit more exciting however i mean i'm fine with it if they want to take first and first lap second lap uh best lap to determine that stuff then that's that's fine um but or or maybe do something with like the drivers maybe like this maybe the slowest driver in the group take those lap times instead of like the fa- I don't know something like that would have been more interesting but I again I'm I'm more of just uh I'm wild card I guess you are so a I felt card. like maybe we could we could have uh, done a little bit more wild card that way but I just felt like uh yeah it was it, it was I think appropriate for how the the series and schedule were handling such a short season yeah I think how about you I. Uh... I didn't mind it. the The main issue I had with the uh, the format was that it wasn't communicated well during the sessions. So we were, you know, very very focused on uh, the first qualifying because you know you see your best lap times. It's like, oh wow, pretty. But trying to go a little bit deeper and find the second best lap and the grid for the second race, it was uh, more difficult than it could have been. And I know that there was some difficulties behind the scenes. I think through one uh, one of the qualifying sessions, they lost like an entire class of timing. So they just had no information besides the cars going across the line. So I'm sensitive to that. And that's part of the condensed schedule and running by the seat of your pants and all that sort of stuff. But I think it could have been communicated a little better uh, during the session. That's pretty much my only gripe with it. Uh, I didn't. I don't actually mind that format as a... Uh, as a qualifying vehicle, I guess, um, because it did add a little bit of variance, like not heaps, because United Autosports still did that thing where they're just good and just got positions. Uh, and we, did, I don't think we saw any variance in the top three in GT at Dubai. I think they were there were the same three cars, but just swapped around. So it's 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 not like there was massive changes. It was just a little a little hard to get your head around encountering it for the first time. Um, and I have you know there is a precedent for this sort of format being used. I remember 
when the supercars, the V8 supercars, raced at Yas Marina as a support bill for the F1. They had three races with one qualifying session, and it was your top three laps sets race one, race two, race three. And the top five cars were the same across all five, all three races, which I think was a little funny. Uh, but yeah, it... I wasn't entirely sold on it, but I wasn't entirely not sold on it. It was a nice little experiment, in my opinion. Uh, the schedule, though, the schedule was brutal. Like, the fact that Yoda Sport managed to get their car on the grid for the Yas Marina races was ridiculous after that incident. Yeah, that was uh, that was going to be tough. And that, I think that was, uh, you know, as much as you could prepare for that, um, you know, obviously the quick turnaround, it's, just, it's difficult to do so in general, just from the, uh, the outset that you have such a limited time frame to do it. And especially with that testing accident, you were definitely going to be, they were way behind the eight ball with that. And just to kind of be able to rebound from that was incredible. And I think it was, you know, it, but again, that that's just how I, I feel like we're not necessarily where it, uh, you know, it's a neutralizer, but it definitely kind of tried to, it, tr- it tried to make everybody, you know, be on the back foot. However, mm. I think what it also did was that it, it uh, the, the teams that are way more organized, way more focused, have way more experience and just have just more mileage on some with their teams and drivers um, are just going to naturally have an advantage with that because, you know, while it is not necessarily the same rituals that they're used to doing, I mean, they're... I feel like their ability to to try to adapt to a completely alien environment in terms of how they're having to, to to prep themselves for two races in basically less than 24 hours was was you know they would have more advantage that way so yeah um that's that's where I it's I struggle with that because it's I did like that, you know we had back to back races but I do feel like um in terms of an advantage it does give some of those better well-funded and more experienced teams a little bit of an edge over some of the ones that might be a little bit more am or that might not have had as much experience turning cars around and trying to get everything ready in in such a tight schedule yeah and uh, to follow on from that the fact that you have such condensed schedule means your testing and practice you know sessions get shortened and there was there was fog in dubai as well so we lost an entire practice session at dubai and you, you think about the am drivers who might not have encountered this race of the like this racetrack before you know you're driving p3 cars brand new p3 cars for some of these cars that haven't ever been raced before or you've never sat in these cars before and all of a sudden your first first run at it and you're doing competitive laps and qualifying you know it, it's a bit of a, a struggle to get your head around that quickly i mean sure you know you have professional race drivers you know this is their job to do that but it doesn't just come like that it's gonna it's a process and the shortening of the process doesn't make it quicker it makes it less perfect yep absolutely um so, so I, yeah I, I i thought it was good i mean i you know it has some strengths and weaknesses but i thought that it it was going to give you an interesting slice of kind of how some of these endurance teams can handle mm. some pretty intense pressure and it showed to me that, the, especially in P2 and P3, the guys to keep your eyes on are G-Drive Racing, who are run by Algarve for the weekends, and United Autosports, because United Autosports were just the evil empire. We'll talk a bit more about them in a second. But G-Drive Racing in particular, their pace in qualifying was astounding. They didn't quite match it at Yas Marina in terms of the race, but at Dubai, they were untouchable for a lot of the races uh to the point where it was 
In race one, it, everyone had little bits of problems, so it was hard to get a read. But in race two, when the chips were down, they came out ahead, and they, you know, won pit stops battles. With like, I remember Phoenix Racing came in with a two second lead over the uh, number twenty six car, the twenty five car. Uh, in the middle part of the race, and, you know, it was a tire change, it was refueling, and the 25 was out five seconds ahead of the Phoenix Racing car. Like, that doesn't just happen. That is incredible work from the pit lane and the crew there, and it kind of broke up the battles in P2. So the the question I wanted to pose for you, did the series have the wealth of quality to sustain those longer battles in P2, the same way that the European Le Mans series has? Was there enough battling in P2 to keep the overall race interesting? Uh, a, half, a half-hearted yes and no on that, because, I mean... Wow, sit on the fence harder. Did your butt ever get Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yes, they had they, they had quality racing because they had quality teams and quality drivers, but at the same time, it was a little bit more of a feast and famine kind of deal when mm. it comes to uh, the team backgrounds and where you really didn't have the opportunity for some of these more uh quote-unquote local teams to you know maybe show show to the front i mean they have a good uh you know a reference point they have a good meter stick kind of for where the they need to get to in order to compete against some of these you know globe trotting international uh lmp2 teams that you know, clearly have the ability with you know and all the x factor with their with their pits with the with strategy driver lineups that kind of stuff um you know that they shown through but at the same time too you know we're i like the amount of entries for lmp2 was a little bit was a little bit down and just from the fact that now you know it, it there, there was such a I'm, I'm not gonna say it was a huge gap but there was definitely a gap between a Jota and the Algarve G Drive racing teams versus the you know RTI and Phoenix Racing and that and that kind of stuff where you kind of did see that separation between mm. you know the the haves and almost have nots when it came to that. So um, yeah, I mean uh, yeah, that and that's that's where I was just I, I almost I just want to qualify it with that where I'm like I'm bummed because it it should there should be more of those teams to maybe fight it out behind the G Drives and Jotas. Um, but it just shows to the caliber that those two organizations, or at least Algarve, showing up with Jota can prove to the world that essentially, like, bring it on, but we'll mm. take you on outside of, I guess, United Autosports. So, yeah, that's um, actually yeah. A, an incredibly measured response from the wild card that you are. <laughs> And it's a it's I'm a wild card that I might even give a measured response when you know least expect it. So that's that's yeah. the most wild card I can possibly be. Absolutely, you are just absolutely could could be anywhere. Uh, and and you do make a good point. You know the fact that Eurasia weren't in the series, into Europol weren't in the series. You know the, those guys that you know we've come to expect uh, in the Asian Le Mans series weren't really there. Uh, but you you are right in saying I think feast and famine was a great way of putting it because there were times I think particularly after the safety car in race two at Dubai where you had Rene Binder, John Falb, uh, Simon Trummer, Arjun Maini, who I want to talk about a little more later on, and Sean Galeo in the mix, all five of them making positions, making passes for a good stint. Like that was that was really cool. But yeah, it, it, there is a little bit, of, definitely a separation in in driver talent, sure. Separation in team talent, sure. Uh, but it was, it certainly didn't have the same 
overall quality is an ELMS field because an ELMS field is ridiculous. You know, like 17 P2 cars, it's just, there are battles wherever you look. Um, but I think particularly at Yas Marina, when we had, uh, in that last race, when we had that go down to the wire, it, it certainly seemed like there was the quality. I would have just loved to have had just a little more of it just throughout the season, just a little more. Uh, a Eurasia would have been so great because I think that they they would, not necessarily set the standard, but they certainly are a good, uh, another meter measuring stick. How You know, that analogy again to where the Asian Le Mans series kind of can produce its cream of the crop per se and throw that up against Jota and an Algarve G-Drive uh, team and see kind of where the chips fall there yeah um and so you know you did have this um you know local teams but they were not really to my to my opinion not to the caliber that we were seeing some of the other you know globe trotting teams come in and to compete but i do still see though that this is uh, this is something that can be attractive for these international teams that might not be G driver Jota just to be able to come in here as well and, you know, maybe sneak a win or at least get into that championship, um, you know, discussion where you can start getting those automatic invites. And, uh, and so I think that there is still, um, just, just from that wrinkle alone, that's why you're seeing, um, the caliber of teams that you are seeing in LMP2 show up and, you know, really show their, their worth. So, yeah. Absolutely, and uh, part of the condensed off-site schedule, I, I think, meant that a lot of those Asian-based teams couldn't really make the the journey, especially in P2. And prototype racing in Asia is something that has taken a long time to take hold. It hasn't been the same as Europe, where everyone's just chomping at the bit to get into some prototypes. It is has been a function of the Asian motorsport market that prototype racing particularly has not been the forefront. It has been GT, which is reflected in the in the entries. Uh, but there was certainly certainly enough, maybe not enough, maybe just just not enough in in P two for the overall yeah, to keep. I agree it. with that. Yeah, um, yeah I agree. What about P two M? Uh, that class has traditionally been for the older spec LMP two machines. Uh, we have seen entries in the high single digits in years past last year we had low single digits which turned out to be two cars by the time the series left australia uh it was two cars at the start of this season which turned into one car after the first weekend how does lmp2 am stay relevant and stay subscribed does it Uh, does it okay i i have a i have a wild suggestion here but there should be some disadvantage weight disadvantage horsepower disadvantage something to the oreca 07 Ooh. and meaning that some of the teams will be advantaged by using alternate equipment so Ooh. somehow if a riley gets over there a <laughs> Lara or a Ligier, they would have a why did you start with advantage. the riley because it's the most crazy lmp2 <laughs> we have right now yeah fair. i'm just saying i think that I, I, because I, in my view, you can't really bring back the old LMP2s or the non-ACO LMP2s, uh, because I thought that that was an awesome, you know, uh, you know, uh, side race really from different equipment. You're you're getting different versions of the prototypes there, um, so you kind of can't use those. And really, I mean, that's that's really it. I mean, the Eureka is just the best car in LMP2 for its current regulations right now, just by a country mile. Mm. And I just feel like the way that this has to go. Uh, you know, maybe even give some relevance to it, but just 
where teams can feel like they have an ability or advantage to win in something that isn't already almost set in stone because it certainly feels like if you are trying to compete for LMP2 AM, like if you don't go Areka, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, and I, so maybe that would maybe help. Although again, <laughs> I don't know how that would potentially go down where teams are going, okay, well, let me find the more difficult cars to find to even buy or run. And at the same time, limited potential parts and stuff. The Areka just has so much built into it that you want to, but again, that's that's where I feel like this can be massaged a bit where we can have maybe some more diversity for chassis in the LMP2 field. And like the 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 money, the financial part of it, there, is, there isn't this huge push to be in the best equipment, fastest equipment all the time, blah, 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 yeah. blah. Like this is LMP2M. So maybe something like that, which again would be, like Areka would be so beside themselves, but again, like they they're they've got they have locked out fields in almost in every single sports car category right now that's running in any series that is running LMP two. You know, it's it's Areka's ninety five percent of the yeah. time. So I just feel like that might be a good stopping place for uh for these other chassis and at least give some of those chassis manufacturers like a reason to run them, yeah, and also a reason to look for teams that could support them. Yeah, and that's a that's a very interesting point because the what I was about to say because this is the first time that they've had the current LMP2 generation in LMP2 AM. So if you're an LMP2 team, why not just run in the overall category? If you're if you're not being like even if you are being bankrolled by an amateur driver, like I'm sure Kyle Tilly, well, I mean Kyle Tilly and Dwight Merriman are not the most accomplished amateur drivers uh but they still you know ran a program in lmp2 am you know if if it was one of those guys if they had two cars one of them in each car and then a bunch of pro drivers they might even be a challenge for overall wins so i guess the the question is why would you run lmp2 am when you can just run overall and i think maybe the opportunity to run different equipment or you know a a a, a different standard of racing might might bring that in Perhaps. Well, right, but like to your point though, that's what I'm saying with with some of these other chassis where you're you're not basically asking a gentleman driver and somebody bankrolling the the team to go. Okay, so we want you to choose in between this category, which you could potentially win overall with almost essentially the same driver lineup, or this category, which is more or less where you're supposed to be, but then you're relegated to kind of uh, the also rans, the has beens, right? Yeah, and you're using the exact same equipment. You know, you're allowed to use pretty much identical stuff here or there to the guys that are winning overall. And it just makes zero sense for a lot of these guys to do it outside of, uh, you know, the potential, you know, for accolades from winning the championship, that kind of stuff. So, and keep again, in like, mind this, as well, that, sorry to jump in yeah. off the top of you. If the category doesn't get enough entries, you don't get a spot at Le Mans. This is the new the new ACO uh, function here. The in Le Mans invites are determined by how many people are running in the class. So it's not like last year where you just had uh, you know a four car a four car class where one car was guaranteed an entry. If you don't get enough entries, the class doesn't matter in terms of the entries for Le Mans, and that is what happened here. Right. And, and, and again, where, where my idea comes into play is that, so not only now that you have the amateur driver or, you know, the, that that's bankrolling this to go, okay, then if we get enough entries in here, we could potentially get that Le Mans invite. 
Um, you also have these manufacturers, these LMP2 manufacturers themselves, being their just their default in for potentially running at Lamar instead of having to court uh, teams to basically be idiots and select mm. a car that is not as balanced and overall as fast as the Eureka um, in the same kind of competitive setting. Whereas if you have these auto invites and they already own the equipment and they already support and you know support you and your brand. It's a lot easier to basically have that auto invite and go, yeah, absolutely. We'll supply all the stuff you want. You proudly race our, our stuff. You 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 say that it's like, you know, the the best car in the class. Ha 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 ha. It's LMP2 Am. But you still have that auto invite for that specific Liger or Delara or God knows O'Reilly. Like <laughs> you have those auto invites to go to Le Mans, and at, that at least is a boon for some of those manufacturers to go like, okay, yeah, we have z- we basically have zero clout. But we we still have a presence here, and we still have a chance, and there's still a team that's willing to run for us. Like yeah. that gives another incentive outside of just having a hapless uh, privateer, you know, a gentleman driver who can fund a bunch of stuff to make a quote unquote worse decision for his his money. I guess. Yeah, that's I entirely agree with that. And for for context on that point, last year at Le Mans there were four cars that were not Oricas out of the what did we have? That's 9, 12, 24 car field. So one-sixth of the class. One-sixth? One yeah, that's right. One-sixth of the class. Uh, three Ligiers and a Delara. And none of them did well. Right, right. Yeah. And, and again, like, that, and, and, that, and, that's, and that again is where you're like, okay, well, you're, you're giving the advantage a little bit back to some of these, to, to that guy that's going to spend all that money. It's like, okay, yeah, mm. he might not win Le Mans. Uh, in his class, but he certainly is going to show up there and represent him and his, and and the manufacturer well. And yeah. hey, who knows? I mean, if you do get it's it's Le Mans, anything can happen, and he gets a podium, then that's a, again another that, win that for huge. that manufacturer. Yeah, yep. uh, yeah absolutely. Uh, uh, the only problem I have with that though, Cookie, the only thing is that whenever any team has gone to an Orica, they've just done so much better, including the most amateur of AM drivers. The fact that Fritz van Erd was hapless in a Delara, then moved to an Orica and immediately was two seconds a lap faster. As an as an AM driver and as a not very not exceptional AM driver at that. You know, Fritz is Fritz is a business owner. He's in his middle years uh, of life. Uh he's you know, he's not a young professional. And the fact that even he in one change of chassis goes two seconds a lap faster is kind of points to how dominant the Orica is. And, you know, we saw this in LMP1H. We saw, we're seeing this in LMP2. We're seeing this in LMP3. Everyone is going to converge on the best solution. And at that mo- at the moment, the best solution is an Orica 07. Well, I, I mean, I agree. And that's where either you have to do a massive time penalty or, or you have to just not allow the Orica to run that class. And again, like the... The, the biggest problem with my idea is that the ACO essentially runs everything here. And so, and they have not really been very good at being genuine and honest with, right. with, <laughs> with how, with their mistakes and they're in a, you know, and the way that this, this, uh, this class is essentially just condensed to one car, which was really what none of us wanted. They would but basically it was be going to happen from that. the very start. 
I mean, yes. The, I, I mean, I, I think when we were talking about this a few years ago, I, I thought maybe we'd have two or three cars, especially with the Joker updates and how that would, that was being pushed as being something to really even the field out. And then when we have one basically the next year and it didn't do anything, it, it, it definitely soured that for me. But this is where I think the ACO would have to essentially, by doing this, admit that obviously the Reka is the fastest car by a, by a wide margin in that class, and that it really to try to advantage the other manufacturers in that class, they should be they're doing this thing to essentially eliminate the Eureka from being in that category, which again gives the nod that the Eureka is the fastest. So to them, it would be well if anybody did want to run that Delara next year, uh, then they wouldn't be able to because you know now we just admitted that it's it's not a really good car, but everybody knows it's not. So that's yeah. where I'm just saying we're already to the point where we're we are absolutely the point where no one wants to run anything other than a Reka, mm. why not actually like lean into that uh, mindset and just remove the Eureka from that class or at least hamper it to enough where the Delara and Ligier and maybe Riley can literally, you know, potentially walk away with that, even with an AM driver uh, being in the same AM driver being in both uh, uh, yeah. chassis, I would say. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I agree That's with that. I, like, I'd love to see it. It's definitely not going to happen because, you know, Frenchies being Frenchies, but I'd like to see that. Um, is there, are there actually any Riley P2 chassis that exist anymore that aren't Mazdas? Uh, Cody Ware's got them. Why? Uh, racing, I should say. Why? Uh, because they're American, they're an American NASCAR starting yeah. park team where they just show up to, to get the entry fee and then run away. So it, yeah, it, it goes to their, to their racing business strategy, shall we say. Fair enough. Uh, LMP3, how do you stop this United train? They won three out of the four races. They took too many out of all of the podiums how, how do you how do you stop them uh, how uh, how is how can it be done nice a- answer with a get good son is that is that appropriate <laughs> yeah fair that is that is an appropriate response you you find the hauler that's 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 hauling the uh the Ligiers, uh for united Auto sports and you run it off the road would that work too damn yeah i mean it would I, mean, certainly... I don't know. Like, yeah. that, like I'm just saying. Uh, like, unless there's a cataclysmic uh, mother, you know, mother nature event that that like lightning strikes their hauler on the way to the track. I, I mean, I don't know. They have the best, in my opinion, right now that we could see chassis that's in the the new LMP3 squad. Yep, I mean, Galicia. we'll see. Yeah, and uh, they have so much experience. Their driver lineups are very, very seasoned when it comes to the uh, this category. And be, their experience in all the other categories that they run, essentially for prototypes, um, lends them a huge advantage over uh, a lot of these other teams, especially when we're kind of seeing everybody be like on the back foot with these two, you know, these two race weekend, you know, championship rounds that are concluded in three weeks. I mean, they just have so much baked in advantage to their uh their team and then to have three entries um is a lot of data to be spread between yes. uh, those, those three cars too yes it is a wealth of information a wealth of driving talent and a wealth of crew talent uh as well uh so they took eight of the 12 available podiums throughout the season the only race that they didn't win was the race where they had two cars expire within the first four laps uh yep. it, they, they have six auto entries to Le Mans they are basically the evil empire at this point and we're kind of okay with it like you know they are exploiting the you know am driver silver or silver rank driver thing where they have you know future professionals in wayne boyd and 
They didn't actually have they didn't actually have uh, Phil Hansen. I'm not sure if he's still an AM driver, but you know they they are they are able to promote young up and coming drivers into silver rated seats and put them alongside established motorsport uh, established experienced heads in motorsport, uh, and they have just done an incredible job of picking apart where others haven't been able to. Yeah, and I mean, they're all doing it. This is all in-house. This isn't like, you know, G-Drive where they're they're kind of courting different professional teams to come in and run their equipment for them. Um, they're doing all of this. This is There's there's a bunch of, of, you know, solid groundwork that's behind these entries and behind these these race victories and championship victories where they're, you know, it's it's not coming from somewhere else. It's coming from United Autosports. And mm. I mean, it's, it's yeah, I mean, they are, they are absolutely the... Uh, the big looming empire over LMP2 and LMP3 at the moment. But I mean, look, that's, that's how ebb and flows work. And yeah. they have absolutely deserved all the credit for, you know, for that success and, and domination. Really. They have had the most ridiculous 18 months. In, I, I don't remember anyone, not even Audi in the peak of the LMP1 days, having that level of dom- dominance in a class in ACO spec racing. I think they went almost the entirety of 2020 undefeated in ELMS and WEC in LMP2. They won, what was it, five races in a row at Spa-Francorchamps or something mental? They, you know, we made mention. They took home one and two in the LMS Championship. They won Le Mans. They won the ELMS P3 class. They've won the Asian Le Mans Series P3 P3 class. Not only that, I think they even placed 1-2. I'm just going to check that now to see whether or not they even placed 1-2-3. Because if they did, that is kind of ridiculous. (laughs) I mean, you know, uh, the 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 last time I would think is like maybe 2011, 2012 with uh, the uh, uh, HPD ARX. I think it was O three with Muscle Milk Racing uh, in the uh, ALMS uh, American Le Mans Series when uh, it was basically kind of a two car uh, class yeah. between them and yeah between them and Dyson Racing and that Lola. But I mean, they were just so dominant. And I mean, when it when you didn't have those international squads that showed up for you know Petit and Sebring, and uh, they were essentially just running away from everything. And just for the you know that can't even be a comparison, just based on the championships that United Autosports are entering, they're extremely competitive. Mm. I mean, like if they didn't show up for this, you would we would be talking probably about a bunch of different winners, bunch of you know different podiums. It would look uh there'd just be a different look to everything for each race, I felt like. Um but it just speaks to the absolute level of dominance that they've been able to at least, you know, show on a European level and now they've absolutely segued that to just running away with everything when it, in the Asian Law series especially. And and on that as well, it surprises me that they've managed to uphold this level of dominance in a spec-ish class. We're talking about LMP2 and LMP3, which are technical, technically spec um, and remain consistent, remain so consistent. Because you would think in, in classes with AM drivers, with variable strategies, with spec machinery, that eventually they would slip up. But they just haven't. They just haven't for 18 months. It's just... An oppressive run of success in the best way possible. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and again, like that's where it's it, it it's not frustrating, but it's kind of like oh okay, there you know it's another United Auto Sports. It, it's almost like a, not necessarily feeling like a dread, but you're like a feeling of, of inevitability with some of this. Mm. But uh, still, with the just to even say that uh, in endurance racing and with how LMP2 and LMP3 are set up to be so competitive, um, that's an incredible achievement. And again, you know, I as much as I would want to be ticked off that we're not having you know that that we're having domination like this in in a category that should not be having a ton of domination like this it just speaks more to the caliber of that team and how good they are right now absolutely and it it does kind of mask the the conversation about you know what is the best p the p3 chassis at the moment is it the Ligier? is it the decane is it the janetta uh when you have a team of such quality just kind of running away from things it does make that conversation difficult to have but we're gonna have it anyway uh there was one duquesne in the asian Le Mans series run by dkr engineering they showed flashes of brilliance uh with a few good runs they ended up finishing the championship in sixth after a dnf in race one uh the Janetta the Janetta had a torrid time, let's be honest. ASC Bratislava struggled through the pair of weekends uh, with technical problems and issues and, uh, you know, bits and bobs and new car teething stuff. This is also the first series, first completed series that we've had uh, the new Duquesne without the ballast for missing the homologation date. Uh, did we learn anything in the, the LMP3 discussion, like at all? Uh, not a ton. Um, if I could take anything, it, the Ligier just seems to have improved on the straight line speed, and it still seems to be the superior car in in low to mid speed corners. Um, and I, you know, when, when we talked about the old iterations of the P3s, um, Ligier to the now Duquesne, um, you know, there was that difference between those uh, the quartering speeds and just the strengths for the Ligier versus the straight line speed of the Duquesne. Uh, what we're going to just continue to call it, even though it's, it wasn't that back then. It was the Norma. Uh, Norma, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I, it, it's hard to say for sure how the Duquesne's going to perform. It just definitely didn't have the data that Ligier clearly does. And, I mean, for all of their woes in LMP2, they certainly know how to build a, a really good LMP3 chassis. And it will be interesting, especially at ELMS, to see more of those Duquesnes show up and to see how they actually do with maybe a little bit better uh, better preparedness and maybe slightly better equipment too, um, with some drivers that might be a little bit more comfortable with it. But I, it looks like the Ligier should probably, I mean, it's, it's hard to say now not it's the Ligier considering how many were entered and, mm. uh, and where they finished, but, and especially with United Auto Sports basically being the, the flagship for that car, um, that they aren't the best, uh, the interesting, just as you said too, with how 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 teething, how much teething problems the Janetta had versus the Decay, that yes, probably they did have more running, um, but they were also a single car entry for this uh, championship essentially, and they were at least able to kind of be where I would I would peg them if they were a single car entry versus a complete fleet of Ligiers that they're running against. So. Yeah. The Janetta definitely has a lot of work to do before they uh, before they pick it up in LMS. Well, it was the competition debut for the Janetta. Let's not forget about that. The Decane, I, I think DKR Engineering, Lawrence Hoare, and uh, the other driver whose name is just escaping me at the moment. I just had it in front of me, Jean Glorieux. They they were in the mix, especially in race two at Dubai. They they chose an alternate strategy option and really added a lot of complexity to the race and 
could have run away with a victory there had things fallen their way. So the the Decane, I'm not that worried about the Decane's pace. Uh, I think running on from the Norma, now that they've gotten rid of that weight, uh, fingers, arms, legs, toes, and eyes crossed that a, a few more quality teams jump into that chassis. I think that that, that is, of course, the problem when you start getting these... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the convergence onto a particular chassis is that you start to lose quality teams in other chassis to start to stop making comparisons. Uh, I, I think, yeah, with the weight of numbers and with the Legia at the moment, it is hard to make those comparisons. But I wouldn't be surprised to see maybe Graf or maybe Nielsen jump back into a Decane, perhaps. Uh, the Janetta, it's a gorgeous piece of machinery, uh, but it needs to be put in the hands of a better set of drivers not saying anything against the IC Bratislava team but they're not United Autosports and with a more comprehensive lineup of cars before we can properly make comparisons because it did not look quick when even when it was on track I mean Charlie Robertson did the best he could with what he had but it did not cover itself in glory no, uh, they, they seem to have issues. I mean, not necessarily where they did, but it, it, it looked like that car was, yeah, was still going through teething issues like shakedown issues, yeah. uh, you know, even when they're getting to the grid and, and that kind of stuff. Like it just, it looked like it was still in shakedown mode, um, which is unfortunate to see uh, just from, you know, where I, I think that I, not to say that they should have been having all this testing because who knows all the COVID stuff. And again, the wrinkle with this being that, it's a British run operation. So a lot of this is kind of, you know, tied, hand, tied behind your back. I mean, the whole port of mouse stuff with, uh, with the WEC and getting pushed back, a lot of that too had to do with um, the actual restrictions from UK residents to get to Portugal and the vice versa, Portugal putting restrictions on UK residents to get there. So there's a lot of maybe moving parts with the COVID stuff that maybe we, we aren't factoring in as much with this, but um, just in terms of the eye test, it definitely looked like they were behind in terms of their development for the car, and which is a shame because it, it's a di- it's a different looking concept to, from the uh, from the Duquesne Norma and the Ligier, um, where they kind of had that that central uh, pointy, you know, essentially kind of yeah, pointy nose, uh, and they're kind of doing more of what you would see from like the Toyota and some of the uh, LMP one H's way back when, which just kind of has that overhang for the entire sweeping uh, nose of the car. Yeah. So yeah, I, I love the the different look of the Genetta compared to both of the mm. other two cars. I just hope that they can get that testing done to get it competitive. Yeah, and and and, it's, and, and also the name of it. I mean, the G sixty one LT P three. One five dash Evo Nissan, like so. That's a nice. That's a nice. It rolls a nice mouthful of gravel you got there. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it sounds like. Uh, and just good. to round off on that point on the Genetta as well. Looking at the best, the best lap times throughout the race. So this is gonna, uh, you know, traffic is gonna play into this. Drivers are gonna play into this. Whatever, whatever. It was consistently two to three seconds off the best pace of the rest of the field, which puts it put it more in the GT field throughout the races so that's kind of the the you know the sort of level of pace that we're expe- we're looking at for the genetic here yeah yeah uh we move on to gt uh the it was a it was a lot of talking points in gt uh first first one i want to talk talk about we talked about it briefly how did having the golf 12 hour and the, uh, the dubai 24 hour 
play into the considerations for the teams. You know, the Porsches were especially strong because they have very recent experience at these tracks. Was the BOP off in those instances because of the recent running with the those teams? Because it, it seemed that the Porsches had more of an advantage than they possibly should have had, even with their experience, at least at Dubai. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that just because they, they seem like they could kind of flip another switch and, and kind of drive off. Mm. Um, and to with it, it being, you know, there it, it's inviting the argument. So whether or not that the BOP was maybe slightly off, it just l- didn't look that great considering the previous outings and, you know, and, and, and just kind of how everything lined up for that. So... I mean, I think there probably was some some BOP issues, but at then at the same time, you know how much of that would have still been a, a something that w- would have been nullified anyway by you know GPX and uh, and you know and other teams like that being having had that experience and having had run that to to kind of try to translate some of that information to the ACOs Asian Law Series. So I I would say that yeah, there it, it could have been better. Um, but at the same time, I think you couldn't really hamstrung this too much, and really they're they're still trying to go off of BOP tables and do this uh, that way. So it's it's difficult. Mm. I, I don't think they nailed it quite right, but um, I, I think it was a it was close. Yeah, I'll say that. Uh, keep in mind that this is the only ACO series that we generally cover here that uses GT3 machinery. Uh, is that is that something that would have played into it? You know, GT3 is a much broader range of machinery than GTE, which the ACO was used to dealing with. Could that have had some sort of effect? Yeah, yes. Um, but at the same time, they're also doing that with the Monster, uh, the Michelin Mon Cup. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I feel like they're... They, they could have a little bit of wiggle room that way, but at the same time, no. I feel like they, like they should have had a, a more kind of uh, even approach with that, and or at least when they went with the BOP, because they they made a BOP change after the first two races. Yes, they made a BOP change like after it. the first race. They added thirty right. kilograms. Right. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that almost didn't seem like it was enough either. Yeah. So, exactly. Uh, and the BMWs were, were, were a fair bit off. That I could tell, the Aston Martins looked like they were pretty solid, and Mercedes were were pretty good. Same with the Ferraris; it looked like everybody else was okay, but the Porsches just had a leg up on everybody else. The BMW seemed to be wallowing in sorrow back there. So, yeah. I, in terms of having it very even, no, I don't, I don't think that they got it right there. But um, you know, I, I think with hopefully more adjusting, and again, we're like the. That's where I would like to see more of the auto BOP show up here, or yeah. at least have a little bit more of information as to, okay, why they made that change or why the decision. Again, it's French ACO, so we're not going to get that. But in a perfect world, I would love to see that so we could at least look at more uh, to see where the Porsche truly had more of the pace advantage. And even where they had that disadvantage placed on them, they still were able to overcome that. So I yeah. think that's that's a question that I, w- I would love to have answered, which I know won't. Yeah, and that's that's... That would be that's the dream, right? That is the dream. Actual open communication about the decisions that the ACO is making. Oh, oh, um, yeah, yeah. Now, now I'm real. Now I'm realizing how much uh, how much of a fever dream that I had just spoke of. But uh, <laughs> still, yeah, it's uh, 
yeah, that's it's wishful thinking, that's for sure. But um, yeah, I, I think <laughs> for how it could have gone, it could have been worse. But yeah, the uh, the Porsches just had a had a, a crazy leg up on on the rest of the GT3 and, uh, field, and that in part might be due to the the condensed schedule as well. The fact that you had so few opportunities to make changes because the cars were on track so very frequent, uh, very infrequent. Well, sorry, frequently, but not uh not for long enough to make those uh changes stick so you know the Porsche did have a little bit of leg up that couldn't be entirely worked out over the course of the season uh a bit of a, a different tack here with this next question we I made mention when we were talking about the Abu Dhabi race 2 uh sorry the Yas Marina race 2 which by the way I, I still think had the best BOP of the lot it took them to the very last race to get it but uh it did take they did get it right in the end uh, there's a lot of complexities around the minimum pit stop time, the 110 second pit stops, the mandation for three of them. Uh, is that, uh, how do you feel about that in racing in general? You know, we've seen this in blank pain, formerly, uh, formerly blank pain, currently SRO. We've seen this in races, long time races like the Nürburgring 24 hours. They have minimum pit stop times. We've seen this now in the LMP3 class for a number of seasons now in the GT class as well. Uh, is it a good idea for pro-am racing or is it punishing excellence? That is the question I want to pose to you. Uh, it would only be punishing excellence by way of restricting um, better crews from completing pit stops faster. Uh, I mean, I, I can get, I can understand and the safety aspect of it where we want everybody to, to make sure that everything's done correctly and, um, and that you don't, you know, these amp drivers, which could be slower in terms of getting in the car, getting themselves ready, um, you know, would there, that is a discrepancy that they can try to nullify by this. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, it, it does feel like they are, they are limiting a bit of excellence, or at least they're trying to, to punish that a little bit. However, I think, again, if, if, if this was more, not necessarily reactive, but it was more a, like a productive, hey, like, we'll... This is our minimum times that we set. Um, not necessarily where you can prove to us, but we're gonna like we're gonna take video samples of stuff just to see, you know, like if 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 more than half of all the teams are are spending five seconds basically sitting there twiddling their thumbs, and it's you know they can definitely check to you know not necessarily check to see how everything is is going in terms of a good pit stop, but just the average amount of stops for all these uh, teams and drivers maybe then they can adjust that and it, you know, yeah. and where it can be baked in where they're going to go. Okay. Well, for after each round, we'll, we'll, we'll assess pit stop times and to see kind of where teams finished their, their stops versus the minimum time and see if that needs adjusted. I think that would be a easier pill to swallow than how it is right now, which is like, we determined that everybody is going to be, we should be this slow because of reasons. Yeah. And therefore, you know, it's, it does remove part of it. However, again, you can you could go for safety, cost cutting, um, enticing you know poor am drivers and teams to stay in these championships because of their unknown disadvantage with that. So it's it's tough because I definitely don't like it, but I understand it. Yeah, at least. I I think I think that's a great way of putting it. I I, I would agree that I don't like it, and I spe- especially especially despise it in the pro classes of SRO racing, like. At that point where this is the peak of GT3 racing, this is the best crews and outfits doing the best that they can do and you're enforcing a minimum on them. That's That to me is stupid. But 
in this context where you have pro-am teams, pro-am outfits, that makes more more sense to me. And it did produce some decent strategies. I kind of took it upon myself while uh, watching these races to basically do the pit stop updates on Twitter uh, for like who had managed to get their pit stops, their like mandatory pit stops done, when they'd done them, how close they'd gotten to that mark, who had gone under that mark. Because remember, if you go under the mark, if you don't get your, if you don't get three 110 pit, uh, second pit stops done before the last half hour of the race, you get a stop and go penalty for the time difference. So if that's one second, congratulations, you've got a drive through penalty. And there are a few teams who ran, ran into that. But what impressed me while looking at all of that was how many teams got it exactly right. And I tweeted about this in the second race at Dubai. I put up a picture. Um, which I'm just going to quickly link to the live chat now, uh, which has got no one in it, which is a bit of a shame. Um, but that was the the last pit stop in the uh, the Dubai race two, and that is literally 20 cars within two seconds of that minimum pit stop time. So they, they, those teams had it nailed down. Uh, I... Yeah, I, 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 I think it's punishing excellence in a pro category, and in a pro am category, it's a better idea. I, wanna, I don't want to say it's a great idea, but it's a better idea. And teams can work around that. Like, as I said, in the Yas Marina race too, Car Guy Racing got all their pit stops out of the way in the first 90 minutes. So they had a free run to do whatever they wanted in the rest of the race, and it came back in their favor. Like, it is possible to work around these things when the strategy is correct uh and i think i think cargo in particular there was a few teams who did that to great effect in that last race yeah and, and so my my only addition to this would potentially be subtracting it from three to two and really just going to the logic that um you know we'd have one to two am drivers something like that or you, essentially two am drivers at the most and that would allow for them to essentially be able to to you know either start the race, finish the race, or you know or basically you know take a stint in the middle of the race and have that you know time for either safety or just for competition wise where they're not necessarily disadvantaged just by them being amateur drivers and not having the professional experience of you know driver changes and and just getting into the car, getting into the setup. So um, I, I think maybe three it would be too much especially for a four-hour race yeah um, even though you know those stint lengths are under an hour but still it's there it, it takes a little bit of the edge off of it and i think if they went to two that 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 it, it's still a speed bump for all the teams but it's more of one where they can they can fold that into more like honest strategy that they would have anyway with these am drivers and i think that one that might be easier um but then you know again i the explanation really from the ACO is just kind of for more of the competition base and, and whatnot. And they don't really expound too much on that. And I would, I would just love to have more clarification as to like, why, why not two instead of three, that kind of thing. But that, that's actually, uh, that would probably be the only modification I'd make. That's a, that's a great point. I, I want to see that. That is, that is the perfect response. Well done cookie. You are a wild player. Uh, <laughs> wild guard. Uh, on the note of strategy options, uh, 
GPX learnt a very valuable lesson in race one of the season where they front-loaded their professional driver time, built up a massive lead, and then watched it slowly ebb away as the uh, AM driver got chased down and then pressured into a mistake. So they learnt that lesson from race one, made that adjustment for race two and won race two. Uh, is that a lesson that other teams should have taken note of, especially considering the safety car periods in race three? Uh, or race four, rather. Uh, you know, where do you slot your bronze or silver driver in that uh, mix in order to maximize your racing performance? Because we saw we saw some teams put their bronze driver in to start the race, and that worked sometimes, and that work didn't work sometimes. I think uh, Takeshi Kimura for Car Guy, he got involved in an accident in the first race because he was the one in the car and you know made uh, got caught up in something that another driver may not have and then they were a lap down before they even knew it on the other hand come race four they were the one's best place with the best drivers in the car because they'd gotten their bronze driver out of the way early how, how do you strategize around a bronze driver or an am driver in a four-hour race yeah, and really, I think that's the last thing you said is the kicker is the four-hour race stint where you, I think that it's difficult to really try to, um, and especially with this series being very amateur focused and not necessarily being like an ELMS caliber of professional drivers and teams where their potential for safety cars and the field neutralization is so high that it, it almost doesn't make sense to leave your AMs for the end just from the simple fact that if there is a mid-race safety car, a lot of the advantage that you've just naturally built in gets removed. Now, at Le Mans, if that was four hours, a uh, four-hour race, that kind of thing, I mean, in the Le Mans Cup, then that's a different story. We can talk about maybe, you know, sending them out, the professional drivers out to do that. And, you know, famously with Van Keating doing that in the mm. did win but didn't win for GT, and that GTM, uh, you know, not race victory for the uh, field bladder, um, that's what they did. And, yeah. uh, and Ben just being Ben was able to really, you know, maintain gaps and, and almost not necessarily pull gaps, but he showed his strength to hold their lead and to, and to hold their advantage that they had by building that up with all the pro drivers first. So it's, I would almost say it's almost like a Ben Keating rule right now. And GPX tried to do that at the first race. So, but I think that for a four hour race in this, in this, in this championship, it, it it's a way more safe and less risky strategy to just put the uh, put the AM driver in first, and then again like race four was that first hour had about forty minutes of, of safety car and uh, fuel neutralization, so you really got a lot of the the bulk of the AM drivers st- you know time in the car out of the way to mm. begin with, and you saw that t- you know GT cars take real advantage of that. Yeah, it's the core autosport strategy. Remember when core autosport did that in LMP two? in IMSA back in 2017? <laughs> yep. Oh. Yes, I do. <laughs> they yep. got Bennett, uh, Bennett driving like 10, 15, 20 minutes and uh, for, uh, a yellow, uh, full course yellow comes out and they throw Colin Brown in to do literally the rest of the race, yeah. pretty much. <laughs> uh, the, the, the one that I remember specifically in all this was Laguna Seca. Remember that awful Laguna Seca race where there was a crash on the start and then a crash on the restart and there was literally 45 minutes of yellow flag racing and John yep. Bennett... He, they were going to go green that next lap around, and so Bennett yes. just so slowed to a stop in front of the pit lane to make sure that he completed like the drive. Twenty time. seconds. Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing, kind of just you know, again wrinkling the 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 uh, the regulations to your benefit, and I loved it. I absolutely loved that. Yeah, that was great. They finished second that race. That was a race that Mazda should have won, but once again, just sucked. 
Yeah, with all the Cadillacs nuking themselves, yeah, they had a mm. perfect opportunity to do it and didn't. Yeah. So, womp Whoops. Womp. Um, ah, yes, Mazda, the best, the best blow up. Uh, now we, we, we could talk smack about them since they're not going to be continuing in LMDH. So, well, like complete sidebar from the Asian Le Mans series, as like. I get the romanticism of Mazda at Le Mans, sure, well, and Mazda in racing and whatever, and, you know, all that sort of stuff. They've been around IMSA for ages. Their program achieved nothing. Their program achieved nothing. They had opportunities to race wins that they threw away. They never yeah. won a endurance monument because they couldn't last long enough. They started with Speed Source, who were not a good team, and they lost every race that they did in that one season where they had a car that wasn't the Speed Source. I mean, sorry, the Diesel uh, in the pits. It just kept happening, and I don't understand why people look at them with such romanticism because they were just kind of crap. Anyway, that's an that's an entire another podcast we can leave for another time. <laughs> but they won the twelve hours of Sebring in twenty twenty flood, didn't you? Didn't you know that? Didn't you understand that? Like after racing there for almost a decade and basically failing epically in every way possible, they finally won the race. They so, won uh-huh, one race. Uh-huh. Uh, of yeah, course, oh, of oh, course, oh, you're the one that bring that up because you're a Toyota fan. Six hour of the Glen. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, see, and 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 the last thing I'll say is like. It's gonna be weird. It's gonna be real weird when they when all of a sudden you'll have like sports car fans, like the younger sports car fans will be like, Mazda was super cool, but I mean, is it though? No, no. And like and, and then like their Le Mans win in nineteen ninety one, and then it's like all the little caveats that we just don't talk about with how like that car was essentially like BOP'd really, really, really well for that race, and that you had a lot of kind of really terrible failures from Mercedes and some of the Porsches to basically just allow that Mazda to kind of like just just Post. stroll up to the victory yeah. for that. Right. So we've given it a pass because it sounds brilliant and it's a rotary engine and it's Mazda and that livery is amazing. But when when we look now at the IMSA stuff, it's kind of soured it a bit because you're like, uh, Mazda, like, I mean, can you just try to maybe win stuff? I mean, like you did win that one time with the car that we really like, but how about now? Can you mm. can you do it now? And it's just, yeah, it's disappointment yeah. incarnate. <laughs> sorry, sorry if you were planning on listening to the Asian Le Mans series review. We just kind of gone off track here. Uh, speaking of going off track, uh, race control called in race four uh, Optimum Motorsports to redress a pass on the Precote Herberth number ninety nine car after it came out of the pits. Was that the correct call? Sorry to bring us back on topic here. Um, we didn't actually ever see the pass. We just heard that it was yeah. outside of the track limits. Um, that ended up forcing a redress from Optimum Motorsport, which meant that when Car Guy took their splash and dash, they came out a good five seconds ahead, where it was looking to be much, much closer than that. Your thoughts, opinions, and everything, please. Just, just if it, if it helps, if it helps, the pass was made about ten minutes before the penalty was administered. So they had about a five second gap on the Herberth Motorsport car before being told to redress that position. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, it, it's this is. I, I think the penalty is fine. I think the um you know it's it's unfortunate that but at the same time we do there's track limits and you know and that kind of stuff for a reason i i i'm not 100% a huge fan of that but these are the rules and i don't you know and i'm i don't want to fight them as much as yeah. i as as i probably should but um uh, no i i think that this seems to be kind of a not necessarily a, a nagging issue, but for uh, race directions in general and race stewards in general, 
Um, I think that should absolutely be more of a priority. And I don't know if they ever have actual race steward um, luncheons and or, uh, you know, conferences where all the race stewards every year meet and party and talk about all those stupid drivers that they had to penalize. But that should be addressed. That should be a a one hour uh, platform discussion where everybody sits and, and discusses the importance to if you're going to make a decision like that, do it as soon as you can. And if it's not, then it, there needs to be some form of a of a redress or maybe a "well, you got us" kind of thing that needs to happen when it comes to that stuff. It's particularly because that, yeah, I mean, it, we, once you get ten minutes past, there's a lot that can happen yeah. in that time, a lot of traffic that can get in the way, and you, you know, that that's an extreme way to essentially dole out a penalty like that. I, I, there's got to be some alternative way once you hit a certain time after it. And I mean, this has been a problem for an IMSA Formula One. I mean, you name a series, and and we've seen penalties doled out way, way, way after. Yeah. Uh, that totally ruins races just for a simple mistake that, like, I guess they should have known but didn't. And I mean, it's it's hard to put that so much on the teams and drivers to the point that you need to punish them like that. So. And and keep in mind as well, this was in the very latter stage of the race, which means it was in complete darkness. So uh, it, it turns out uh, I led you a bit astray. It wasn't for an off-track pass. It was for avoidable contact in the past. So uh, that was... And that was early, wasn't that? Wasn't that like uh, in the, within the first hour? Or was no, that no, no. Right this, was, this was just as the Porsche came out of the pit. So the sequence of okay, events was okay. the Optimum Motorsport took their last stop. It was the a mandated time stop. So that was 110 seconds. Breco yep. Herberth Motorsport took their stop. They didn't have a time mandate. So it was a splash and dash. They came out on very old tires. So they were just ahead, like talking one second ahead. Passes made, assisted with contact. Uh, 10 minutes down the road, Kessel Racing make their last stop. At the same time, Race Control says you've got to redress that pass for the McLaren. They had built a 10-second gap in that period. So it was... A 10-second gap is certainly not insignificant. And that could have... Not saying it would have, but it certainly could have changed the overall result with where those cars are coming out on track. I think you make a very, very good point there that when these incidents happen, the race control needs to be on it and they need to do it quickly. And there is a bit of a double-edged sword in that respect because you can end up just giving positions back willy-nilly that you might not have needed to because racing you're assuming a, a, a penalty is coming i that used to be something that happened a lot in the supercars championship in in australia you know you you'd see a pass made that was kind of 50 50 and then rather than getting up the road and then having to give it back the driver would just give it back immediately uh which you know is admirable in one respect but it did in the end cause quite a big accident at bathurst quite a famous accident where a, a car was trying to redress returning to the circuit trying to redress got involved with another car that was trying to make a pass at the same time and calamity happened um i'm sure i'm sure if i say jamie winkup scott mclaughlin garth tander there's a few people in the audience who know exactly what i'm talking about it's it's tough because you can't expect race control to have all the information straight away and make those decisions straight away uh but 10 minutes is not an insignificant amount of time and 10 seconds is a not insignificant gap to then be telling to give up. So, yeah, I don't know. We never actually saw the pass, by the way. We never actually saw the contact on the broadcast, so it's hard to have an opinion on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. and that's, again, where it's like, uh, you know, I, as much as I... Uh, 
am I have an issue with how the penalty, the time uh, length or the time frame, at least when the penalties were issued. I don't have a problem with the penalties being issued, in, you know, for that reason. So yeah. it's just kind of it, it, it's it's more of like a do better, do better governing body, which is a little bit of a juxtaposition, <laughs> I guess, from where they're essentially telling the race teams to do or drivers to do better. So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I think I think that that. But again, this this is not a problem that is solely uh, inherent with just sports car racing or just the ACO. Um, this is a problem that affects the SRO and IMSA and you know the FIA and all of those other um, series and, and and whatnot that just uh, uh, crazy length time lengths between sometimes penalties. Mm. I mean, you know, there's a few Formula One races and and issues where that happened, and it was like like almost almost half the race had already ran before a penalty was issued for a thing that happened at the start or something like that. It was like, come on. I mean, yeah. you know, there's definitely a time and place for it and, and whatnot. But at the same time, like if somebody got an advantage and you didn't punish them in a certain time, then I, I just, I don't see the need it, to, yeah. to, to really do that. It, change, it, it allows too many variables to continue to change the race once that position has been changed. And like, we have seen great, uh, use of penalties like this in ACO racing before. I seem to recall the 2016 Fuji race where we had the G-Drive and RLR M-Sport machines very late in the race uh, for P2 honours, you know, pass off the circuit limits. It was one lap. You've got to give it back. And that was that. that's a, a good example of it being used correctly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a... You'd hate to see them get the get the wrong decision, but you want the right decision quickly, right? Yep, <laughs> otherwise, absolutely. otherwise, just punish everything post race, and then just turn turn the results where the results are made up and the penalties don't matter. <laughs> or, or just some diminishing returns thing if by X time length based on the 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 length of the race itself, then you know then X action cannot be applied. It has to go through Y or, yeah. you know, there, it, or something where that it's, it's still uh, inhibiting, you know, potential advantages that were taken on track, but it's not done in such a severe way after the ebb and flow of the races already began. Because yeah. honestly, like then these teams, you know, would, you know, and I, then I get the argument too, where you could go, okay, well then these teams, you know, then have to, it's more of a self-policing thing than yeah. too, because they don't want this to be looming over them. But at the same time, it's like, I just, I don't, that doesn't sit well with me either. Yeah. So. And, and to be fair, it, the only result that it could have drastically changed was the overall victory. I, I mean, the, the difference in strategy for the, the Porsche and the McLaren in particular, and the Ferrari behind, the, the Ferrari and the McLaren were on fresh tyres, the Porsche was very much not. So it was unlikely that the Porsche was going to be able to hold on for the remainder of the race. But what it did do was it definitely stilted the McLarens and Ben Barnacote's chance to make a push for the victory. And that's that's the, the, the prevailing issue here. Um, which is unfortunate, but in the end, we still got a cracking grace out of it anyway. Now, we've got 15 minutes left before we should really head off, because that's two hours is almost too long to be talking about sports cars. Drivers that impressed you throughout these four races. Who have you got? Uh, I, I, I'm... I'm relying a little bit on some of your list here, but I mean, it's kind of some usual suspects that, that we've seen, um, you know, with, with Michael Jensen and Ben Barnacote. Um, and then, but then we, we've had some really standout 
drivers as well. I mean, we've had, you know, Sean Galeo coming in, um, you know, and then Hasberg as well. Maldonado, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, and, Manuel and everybody Maldonado. kind of would look at that and be like, well, pastor. And it's like, mm -mm, mm, Manuel Maldonado, he did very well. Mm. I, I thought that was a really good performance as well. And we saw some good GT drivers um, in there too. So honestly, it was, it was better than I thought for driver talent that I wasn't kind of expecting. And we, we saw some names that we weren't normally used to seeing at some of the fronts of these, uh, uh, of the classes really. Yeah. And that was awesome to see. And I thought that there was, there was a breadth of, pretty good talent that was able to show itself uh, in those four races. Yeah, I, I think particularly uh, those drivers that G-Drive had that they kind of pulled from uh, F2 or F3. Uh, yep. we, we talked at, at length in the preview about Franco Colapinto, and he just blew us away in the entire... Yep. He, he was a driver of the series for me. I Yeah, I would yep. I mean, I, I would say in terms of he had, he had the best overall four-race races yeah. or you know four series races as i would say for sure yeah uh even uh you in the in the other car we we mentioned sean galeo he, he basically exists for the redemption arc uh i want to i want to talk more about uh Arjun Maini, the the best driver in the racing team india car now i remember seeing Maini in uh, elms he took on a drive at the Bend, driving the RLR M Sport car uh, in the LMP2 AM category last year, and was the quickest LMP2 AM car by a long way whenever he got in the car. And so to see him in a P2 car running against other P2 cars and eclipsing them, like that battle after the safety car in race two at Dubai, he was putting in some work. So keep a pin in that name, that one's going to come up more in the future. And Malta Jacobson in the... Uh, uh, oh, not the DK engineering car. The other one that was interesting that we didn't get to see a lot of because when he wasn't in the car, it was nowhere. Uh, the RLRM Sport car. He was incredible. They put him in at the start of every race and he would just go and he was gone. So Malta Jakobsen, keep an eye on that name for the future. Uh, the Arjumani, uh, the, I remember him famously for that 2018 rant in F2 where he was very upset at his team vocally on the radio so i'm oh. glad to see him kind of getting his feet under him and you know having more of a quiet <laughs> uh you know championship run with g-drive granted uh, you know i'm sure that is you know the the situation in 2018 and f2 is entirely different from the, how the g-drive team and hey, he was uh, in and, rci uh, yeah, yeah yes yep yep and uh and be yeah between that and and now it's different but at the same time it's uh you know it's good to see him perform well because yeah he absolutely had talent and honestly i don't disagree with his points in 2018 either so <laughs> well, okay see i i have absolutely no context on that because i've not watched feeder series formula one i i started watching it last year because there was less motorsport to watch <laughs> yeah okay yeah, yeah fair fair yeah. fair uh, uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was more or less just calling out the team for not essentially resolving issues with uh, with engine management and mapping at uh, at uh, uh, France actually at that French round. So huh. yeah, he was he was vocally upset on the radio, swearing, and yeah, it wasn't a good look at the time. Let's just say that. But uh, yeah, he's made his redemption. Nice uh, redemption mark. Awesome. Uh, I just also want to just put in a, uh, put a note next to uh, Patrick Kujula, as I mentioned earlier. Every single time he was in that car, in the number 66 Ronaldo racing car, something was happening. And it was either him blitzing through the field and putting everyone under pressure, or uh, getting penalties for track limit abuse, or making contact with someone. It was he, he, he was the Cookie Monster FL of that series, so it was an absolute wild card. 
Um, what about drivers that disappointed you? Uh, the weird revolving door that was Phoenix Racing's pro drivers, they disappointed. I think that I was expecting more from Vanderlinda and team, and they kind of didn't mm. to a certain extent. And so I, with your notes that you have, I, I definitely agree there. Um, and yeah, I mean, Galeo had a really horrific first race, um, you know, for first two I, races. First two races, yeah, but definitely the first race was was pretty bad and uh, and left for a good redemption arc. But you know that's where I would definitely agree with you. He didn't, he wouldn't be you know a driver of the of the uh, championship. That's for sure for me. Um, so yeah, those I, I would say the pairing of Kev- Calvin Vanderlinde and Nikki Team kind of in that Phoenix Racing Pro driver lineup was uh, yeah a little bit little bit a little bit more that I would have expected yeah. from them that they showed. They were just kind of anonymous. Yeah, they were there. Yeah. I, and like, you know, uh, surely the pair of them debuts in P2 Machinery. Sure, that's fine. I totally get that. But also, like, it was Colapinto's debut in P2 Machinery. It was Rui Pinto de Andrade's debut in P2 Machinery. It was Ifei's debut in P2 Machinery. Like, these guys absolutely blitz Phoenix Racing. So, like, I, I, I just expected more, <laughs> to be fair. Yeah. 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 No, um, I mean, I and, and for good reason too. I mean, they they both are pretty high caliber GT drivers, mm. and um, and it seems like a lot. I mean, if we want to even base anything off of uh, Nick Tandy, uh, that and the, that Porsche squad, that there is a ability for really good pro factory GT drivers to step up into prototype equipment and to perform well. So maybe that was Phoenix Racing setup that really didn't didn't lend them any favors, and it was maybe more set up for the AMs. Yeah. But yeah, they both of them were kind of just there. Yeah, I, I also want to just throw into the mix maybe Nielsen Racing. You know, last year season's reigning champions. They never really got going. They had that one good. They had that one properly good result where they were one two in race three of the season. But you know, they they seem to struggle to find consistent pace. I mean, they did take the only non United Autosports podiums as well. But like you know, fourths and fifths and sixths and sevenths, they weren't really where you would expect them to be. And also, uh, the GT reigning champion, uh, ooh, where have they gone? I had them in front of my eyes and now they're gone. Uh, I've forgotten who they are. They were literally right in front of me. The, the Preco Herbert? No, no, no. Uh, the reigning champion, Hub Auto Racing. There we go. <laughs> Sorry oh, for that. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, again, a team that just never really got going. Uh, they had a suspension failure in race one. They had a spin that took them out of position in race two. They weren't really in the mix in, in Yas Marina. You, you you would have expected a lineup of Marciello, Gomez, and Talbot, who's a pretty accomplished Australian uh, AM racer, to have a bit more behind them, I would have thought. Yeah, I mean, a factor two with that being really the only Mercedes there, mm. um, you know, that could have factored into it a bit. But uh, that's still such a stable and base chassis. Granted, that is year sort of two of that new Evo uh, Mercedes, uh, you know, bodywork and that stuff. So maybe we still have some, you know, balance issues, you know, just teething things here or there to, to, to fix. But um, yeah, I, I think that there was... There is absolutely there should be an argument for that uh, that Mercedes to be higher up in the in the finishing order for all four of those races, and it really just never found its way out there. Yeah, it ended up finishing the championship in seventh with the best result of fourth. So you know, not really anything to write home about, unfortunately. Unfortunately for the team, because that is a really really good team, and they uh, after their 
difficulties at Le Mans, I would have liked to have seen them have another crack at it, but it looks like they will not be able to, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, cool. I, I think that's... I think that's as far as we can talk about the the season from a racing perspective. What about a, a an entertainment and a broadcast perspective? We we have been very pointedly avoid, avoiding this discussion for the entire podcast, but the broadcast has room for improvement. Let's put it that way. Um, I <laughs> yes, I I, I think. <laughs> Part of the reason some some people found it very difficult to track and difficult to watch, myself included, uh, to be fair, was that when things were happening on track, we weren't getting pictures of them. And that was a consistent problem, especially at Dubai. They seemed to get a bit of a better handle of it at Abu Dhabi. But it... <laughs> I'm trying to be nice. I'm trying to measure my words here, but it wasn't great. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'll be honest too, and that a lot of the ACO products aren't necessarily the greatest anyway. Uh, I mean, they do have the ability. I mean, from what we saw in at Le Mans last year, when they were opening up a lot of their uh, behind-the-scenes stuff, is that they have the technology and they have the manpower to absolutely deliver we have a good the product. We have it. We also have a lot of money, French money. <laughs> Uh, but like, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it was, it was odd because I mean, for one, I can understand that there's not probably going to be those staff that's probably at the track themselves. So you might have some delay in terms of, Hey, let's, let's switch to this, let's switch to that. And they, there might be a less organic, uh, part to play that you can see translated into the, the, the TV product. But at the same time, it's just, there wasn't any at all. Mm. And it just felt like, okay. Like it's felt like somebody, some programmer was working full time. And then he had a separate screen on the, you know, like across the hall and he would like be working, working, working. And then he would just quickly grind us over and, you know, use the mouse for the Asian law series uh, feed and, you know, live feed. Okay. Well, let's switch to this car. Okay. Let, let me go back to this thing. Yeah. Or like it was like you writing up, a, a, you know, mid race reports being on Twitter. Then at the, also at the same time, managing the, you know, which live feed direction you go with, with the, with the actual broadcast feed. So yeah. it, it, it felt weird, especially too, because they had GG and Ollie Gavin on site, mm. uh, or at least it appeared to be so. Maybe they were not there no, either. They, and they, they, also were, had they were absolutely on site because they had drivers in the booth post-race. So they, they absolutely yeah, so, were on site, yeah. Yeah, so it, it was weird that they that they went to that length, but then they they just didn't have a race director who seemed to know what what motorsport was because he just kept getting like lost in the in the gaze of some of the headlights or taillights or something. Or maybe he just loved looking at the cars a lot <laughs> and didn't want to cut away to other cars. Yeah. I, I'm, it just... It was weird that they didn't have the capability of if they missed something to go back and look at it. And then if they didn't even get it anyway, they didn't really try to recap or try to fill gaps. It just yeah, was like, it was, this is what we got. Have fun. Yeah, it was it was very peculiar, especially talking about the replays. You know, there there were replays that very clearly did not scroll back far enough. And, you know, you were like, okay, so this is the aftermath, sure, but you've certainly got what happened before because we can see it in the shot when you're starting it. So that, that to me, was especially peculiar. Um, it, yeah, it seemed that there was some sort of disconnect between the guys in the booth, the guys in the production truck, and what was happening on track. Uh, I, 
recall on more than one occasion actually trying to get the series' attention on Twitter to try and get them to follow something. It, it actually worked in the last race. They actually started talking about GT when I said, hey, you guys should talk about GT. Uh, but it, it was a consistent problem, unfortunately, throughout the series. How, how do you reckon good... Uh, not Goodwin. Goodwin. We know Goodwin's good win. Uh, uh, what about Oliver Gavin? His debut in commentary. I, I didn't think he did a bad job. No, I, it, there was there was definitely parts where it was, you know, uh, his demeanor is, is, is slightly different and he might, you know, he might take lessons from these first four races if, if this is something that he wants to, you know, lean into with a trajectory into commentary for that, you know, not necessarily where you have to have a little bit more pip in his step, but like where that he's, he's just maybe showcase broadcasting a little bit more excited talk as a color commentator yeah getting um, into that presenter voice right yeah and and to that end too it's it's not that you have to be over the top and all that stuff but you know this stuff you're you're trying to translate the excitement of this race in and the uniqueness of this series and this championship to a international audience that either a has already seen a, a bunch of of endurance racing before or has never seen it before and you're trying to kind of interject your own experience and your own passions into kind of this sport to really hook other people and to really provide a unique experience for these people watching and listening to this. So I feel like that's where the baseline should be for this. And, you know, I, I can't fault him for the effort that he gave because it was, it was decent. It just, you know, it lacked a little bit of an oomph. And, mm. you know, I can't, I can't fault him too much for that, uh, for this kind of being his first outing in this, in this series. I would not at all be surprised to learn that the schedule and the travel and everything about how compressed that season was uh, would have some effect on their ability to deliver a good product. You made mention of having Graham Goodwin and Oliver Gavin in the booth, Darby, uh, by Yas Marina rather. There were times where they sounded tired and I could 100% understand why. Yep, yep. (laughs) And, And again, like that's where it's like, like uh, if if we're gonna critique, we're go, we'll, we'll go there. But then at the same time, you know, keeping in context, where I mean, not only are the drivers of teams exhausted, but I mean, I'm sure the whole behind the scenes crew in the admin side of just running this race for you know just the stewards and you know just the race staff themselves, including and, the broadcast crew and the media definitely personnel, that. the organization personnel. Like the yep. I, I wrote something at the end of uh, of my uh, my last article, uh, my last race report that. I, I think bears repeating right now. Uh, the Asian Le Mans series managed to cram 16 hours of racing into 10 days into an, in an extremely intense and compacted schedule. And it was only fitting that the most intense and compacted racing right, came right at the end. The, the, the fact that they managed to do that with people located around the world, with some people on site, with all of the complexities of managing a international motorsport series at that caliber in that sort of time frame like you have to take your hats off to them and and give give them a bit of leeway with a, with a few things like you know the commentators being tired and things like that because boy howdy I was tired by the end of that season as well yeah and and that, and again that I think that's where everybody was at and and that's where you can definitely lean a little bit more into you know having to be on it but then that's where it kind of comes in where like you could definitely tell that people were tired but and it's 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 just it's hard for me because I've seen I've been in broadcast trucks uh, uh for in production trucks for 
you know, national broadcast, you know, um, in live sports, that kind of stuff. And I, I don't know how it works in, in this kind of setting in, in the Asian law series, but there are those guys, when they're doing that, they are, they're paying attention. They're looking at multiple feeds. They've got, a, you know, they've got their support staff that are, that are basically segueing between shots, calling up shots to be queued next. Like there's a, there's a rhythm and style to this that it felt like there, it was one guy doing it and he had no real context of yeah. like motorsport and stuff. So I, and that might not obviously be the case at all. And it, this might just be a, a case of everybody was maybe at home and nobody was actually in front of their uh, together in the same room, nevertheless being at the track. So there might be that wrinkle to it, but just for how long that they were hold shots versus the, of cars just running by themselves and the brought and Gigi and Ollie were not talking about that car at all. And they were not even talking about that class and they just kept showing it. Whereas there was battles galore happening on other parts of the track was yeah. mildly infuriating. It, and it, I don't know if I can, I can, I don't know if I could explain that away as being everybody was tired. Cause it felt like that, that was the, that was the problem the entire time yeah. uh, from race one to race four. I, I think the word they used is we had pictures without context sometimes. And that mm-hmm. was, that was the most frustrating part. Uh, and I'm not, I, I, I don't really want to speculate as to why that is, because I'm sure that some people involved might end up listening to this and I don't really want to be throwing anyone under the bus. Uh, no, but, not at all. Not but, at all. It, but that is certainly an area to look at improving for next season, provided that circumstances don't change and we don't have a entire season within two weeks again. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And again, like all, all of this is the, is with the context that this is extremely extraordinary mm. um, in terms of what they were able to try to like pull off and they managed to do so. So, um, you know, lessons for, for next time. And, you know, uh, but at the same, you know, I, I, I'm not going to, I, you know, I'm not going to pound my fists real hard about this. It was, you know, it was as good of an effort as you can hope for with this, pretty insanely condensed schedule that they have yeah. running it, it was uh, yeah as good as an effort as you could reasonably expect and i'm i'm happy with that uh, by the time the last race came around they got their shit together so <laughs> thank you for that uh yes final thoughts on the series as a whole i i think as an experiment it worked it worked well as a as a i don't want to say as a last minute thing because it wasn't ever a last minute thing we knew about this from we knew about this before we knew what was going to happen to ELMS last season so the, the fact that we we were prepared for this as the product and this as the product was delivered as expected that's that's a a pretty good uh that that is exactly exactly what you want from an ACO series um I thought the racing was good performance was good GT especially had a lot going for it it was it was good I would, I would totally agree with that. I mean, you, you know, there's always going to be things that are lacking with this, with just ha- this schedule in general. I mean, I think anybody that had half a brain would be able to immediately see like, oh man, this is going to be, this might be tough here. This might be tough there. Um, but I think for, yeah, for, for how they managed to do it with the pretext of, you know, COVID restrictions being a huge thing in Asia and for a lot of the rounds that they would have probably wanted to go. And obviously them being able to just hop between countries is, you know, almost not possible. The fact that they were able to kind of hold this still in, uh, in a former, in a former round that they, they ran in in previous years. And then at the same time, being able to use a new track kind of to the ACO environment, uh, I thought was a, a great compromise. 
and yeah, it was it, it was unique. And mm. you know, we've seen sport. You know, we've seen motorsport over the last year uh, be forced in these positions to make unique uh, unique decisions. And you know, um, this was one of them. I think where you, you know, I don't think we'll ever see this ever again, unless you know we're talking about this in a year from now that they're doing the same schedule. But it, you know, like. I love that we had a we now have a benchmark for how how quickly can you start and then complete a championship uh, endurance championship and actually have it work and not have it fall to pieces halfway through. So yeah, um, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was a success for how for how in, insane really like some of this was like it that was that that was extremely tough for some of these drivers and teams. I can't imagine uh, how much sleep that they lost throughout the, the, those two and a half weeks. Yeah, can you imagine finishing a race in darkness like 10, 30, 11 p.m. after doing a three-hour, three seven-minute stint to win the race and then going, I have to do exactly the same thing in less than 24 hours' time? Yeah, like, that's, yeah. And, that's I, and so unique. Yeah. So unique. I mean, like I said, you'll, you won't see that ever again. Absolutely. Uh do you want to quickly chat about Daytona, or should should we wrap up? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, D- Daytona. Well, I said we were in the last episode, so I feel like now yeah. I, I wasn't even playing. I was going to listen to this, and I'm going to listen to myself talk about it. But um, no, yeah, uh, Daytona 24 Hours happened uh, like uh, a month and a half ago, yeah. I guess now. And uh, yeah, the first win for Acura, who won uh, in the overall overall race for Wayne Taylor Racing, who continues to essentially pull out all of the rabbit's feet and throw them on track uh, simultaneously <laughs> so that his cars win. And uh, crazy to, to see uh, that be an um, intense battle all the way to the end in which we had a tire puncture essentially decide the winner because the Cadillac, who probably should have won, and again, how crazy good that Cadillac is at Daytona, with Wayne, uh, not Wayne Taylor Racing, but uh, uh, Chip Ganassi Racing, having that puncture late, um, and what a redemption arc that would have been for Edgar Van Zandt, being mm. basically racing up against his old team, and just came up short with that, uh, finishing fifth. But yeah, uh, Acura gets their first uh, Daytona 24 win, and uh, ever I think I don't remember if they've ever won that before. Huh. And uh, Wayne Taylor continues his uh, his streak of madness. Yeah. Also, Era uh, ERA Motorsport won uh, LMP2. With uh, some of the drivers, yeah, that Who were in the series, yeah. unbelievably slow. Yep, in uh, Asian Law Series too. So the slowest um, driver then, in yeah. the P two field won the race. Uh, as as it should be that that <laughs> um, uh, it felt very much Le Mans prototype challenge, and yeah. I I desperately missed that class. So I and then Corbett, do not. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, just just for the wild card, man. I'm yeah. You know, okay, you're all. I'm bringing the wild card theme back. Uh, yeah, Corvette Racing winning GTLM, uh, BMW kind of being out in the field, and then uh, Rizzi, you know, valiantly being there. And, and Porsche getting killed before leave. the race even bloody started. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, that, I'm not entirely sure what happened, and the only thing I can assume is that the Corvettes were just a little bit slow, and everybody somehow was watching them behind them mm. and decided to jump. And it was weird because it almost looked like there was like somebody that was on like race control was on the radio being like, OK, green. And for some reason, the Corvettes were like a half a second delayed with their with that call because it, basically everybody found out, including the GTD field. And it essentially, I guess, led to the BMW just driving through the back of the Porsche for some reason. Oh, my God. And uh, really ruining that that potential royally that Porsche could have given Corvette. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody who is a Porsche fan or just even a fan of that class is just like, oh, well, half of the class just got, you know. <laughs> Before the race even started, we have 24 hours of this. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. 
And then the LMP3 surviving 24 hours but finishing behind the GTLM field is kind of what I expected. Mm. Um, but glad that they were able to finish. We had like a bunch of safety cars from all, all different classes, essentially. Um, and then the GTD field being really, really good. I would say that was that was very, very good in terms of BOP. Um, you had multiple overtakes. You had multiple teams that were leading for good stints that you could absolutely say were were going to potentially win the race, and it ultimately was ended up winning by uh, one of the uh, Mercedes taking one two uh, with Winwood Racing. So I, I mean, I, I would say that's probably one of the better GTD races that we had besides what was it, 2014, 2015, where we had that like last lap, like uh, overtakes the and Magnus penalties one. and stuff that were issued there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, overall, I think that was a, 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 a solid Daytona 24. And then, um, this being third year attending, um, I wasn't able to stay for all 24, but, um, it was great to at least, uh, be at the track and, um, and then just to see the evolution of kind of the COVID response from, um, earlier last year in mid July, when they first hosted that two hour race to kind of get the IMSA, uh, series started back up again versus now in terms of what they were not allowing, what they were allowing. So, um, but it, it, it's, it's, we're getting there nice. and, uh, it was just good to be able to go there and support the series and to, and to see really honestly a good quality race. Nice. Thank you for that little brief sojourn into the, uh, into the Daytona 24. We, we probably should have done a proper full review, but life is hard and busy and long <laughs> as, as has this podcast, Understandable. as has been this podcast. <laughs> Uh, I knew I knew it was going to be over two hours. I knew yeah, it was well, going to go over two hours. It, it just keeps happening. Whenever you and I get together and chat, it's just like we just we just keep talking to each other. It's great. Yeah, it's good pants. Love good it, bands. love it. Uh, is there any more that we want to chat about, or is this is this time to say goodbye? Uh, I mean, I feel like we could have talked about some of the auto invites and uh, and kind of the Lamont debuts for some of these teams yeah. but i feel like when we get that entry list coming in especially with the with the calendar changes that are now in effect for this year for wc and lamar uh it might be best to maybe save those for a little bit to, Ooh, yeah. wait, especially when we get the uh the entry list coming out here soon that that sounds like a great idea so on that note we'll say goodbye thank you very very much for listening thank you for joining me austin thank you michael for letting me come here no hang problems. out Thank you to the RacingLine.app for sponsoring us and keeping us on the airwaves. I mean, we'd be on the airwaves anyway, but now that all it costs us is our priceless time and effort. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, now and and sleep schedule because I mean, I had a I had a, I turned off notifications after the first race because I was like at four a.m. But hey, like now I'm getting notifications for when race starts are. So like I will take <laughs> that every day. Ah, brilliant! Love to hear it. Well done. Anything to ruin your sleep schedule, Cookie. Oh, it, it gets ruined anyway, but I'd rather it be for sports car racing than anything else. This so. is true. Thank this you. is true. Of all the reasons to ruin you your sleep that. schedule, sports car racing is one of the best ones. And we yeah. hope that you ruin your sleep schedule with all the racing that's going to happen coming up shortly with what's starting soon? IMSA's back soon, right? 12 Hours of Sebring. Yeah, we got 12 Hours of Sebring coming up. Uh, and then we would have had WC and ELMS coming up after that, but uh, that those got pushed. So we're going to have a little bit of a quiet time of just being very attentive to IMSA's races and calendar schedule at the beginning of this year, for sure. Oh, joy. I can't wait for it. <laughs> <laughs> you are so excited. I, I No, I, I'll, 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 I'll probably watch. Uh, anyway, thank you very much for listening. That's it. That's all we got. Bye. Goodbye. I'm Bloodman11. Thank you for listening. Peace out. Yo, one oh, gazoo.